Hi, everyone. Welcome to Path to Glory, a Warhammer Underworlds podcast that focuses on competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. I'm your host, Iman, and I'm joined by your other host, Jonathan. Hello. And today we're joined by our guest, three-time guest, and good friend of the show, Jimmy Corn Cares Not Molini. How's it going, Jimmy? <laughs> hey, guys. How you doing? We are doing all right. Are you having a good weekend? Doing well, yeah. Just uh, still uh, still quarantined since the last episode, but uh, so far uh, my wife hasn't kicked me out of the house yet, so doing well. I think that is the biggest <laughs> win you can ever get, so um, good. Jonathan, how about yourself? Yeah, doing well. Um, I've been uh, just trying to stay busy, and uh, the quarantine's going going well. I've been grocery shopping a couple times. It's tends to be the highlight of my week. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. I uh, I actually don't leave the house except for either going for runs or grocery shopping. So I think that makes sense. Um, well, with that, let's jump into um, our first segment, which is uh, kind of what we've been up to, community recap. So, Jonathan, go ahead. Sure. Um, the first thing that I have is that today is actually Amon's birthday. So happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Happy birthday, Amon. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Big old 28. Nice. It's too too bad that we can't uh, do much more to celebrate it, but uh, we'll have to we'll have to do that the next time we're able to get together, maybe get a grand clash or something. So yes, I have plans. <laughs> At to... this rate, it might be your next birthday. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, whenever we're able to meet, I do have a bladed birthday uh, event in mind, so we'll go out in uh, whichever city we're in. Have a good time. <laughs> cool. Um, other than that, the uh, I think the main thing that's been going on with Underworlds is that the online version has officially launched. Um, I've been playing it a little bit, and I have also done card reviews for all the cards that are on there on Willow Power. So if anyone wants to play it, I would recommend checking that out. Um, I If anyone hasn't played it in a little while um, or hasn't played it at all, I'd just generally recommend it. I think it's kind of reached the point as far as the number of cards that they have in the game um, that it's starting to be interesting to me um, again. Uh, at first, they didn't really have that many cards, so it was like pretty obvious what you needed to do, and there were only like four warbands, but now they have six, and they have like 30-something universals, and then all the faction cards for those warbands. So you can actually build you know, a, probably a couple decks for each warband. Um, so it's uh, pretty fun. And they've it seems like they have most of the glitches um, ironed out as well so um check it out if you uh are bored <laughs> so jd the uh, to clarify the game is called warhammer underworlds online and it's on steam is that correct yeah that's correct yep 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 i um i've been really curious as i'm messing around with it i've been playing a little bit um just to get a b- better understanding of, of how the game looks and feels and so i uh i am interested to see what the competitive meta looks like. I, I don't know if I've found something that really tweaks my interest as of late, but um, I yeah. guess I'll just mess around with the Far Shredders. Jimmy, have you <laughs> have you tried the game? Uh, I've tried it once, but that was a few months ago. But yeah, I look forward to uh, uh, taking a deeper dive in the very near future. Yeah, I, I think it's basically like at the baseline of where I would consider it like starting to be pretty fun because um, to me, you know, a lot of the fun of this game is the deck building and the different strategies and 
Um, I think by the time they do another card drop or two, it'll, uh, you know, probably be about where the end of season one was and uh, should be pretty exciting. So <clears throat> um, I think that's everything that I had for community shout outs. Um, there hasn't been too much uh, going on. Did you guys have anything else? I did not. Jimmy? Negative. Okay. Well, um, one thing I guess that we all did participate in in the community was an online event. Uh, just a couple days ago, about six days ago, last Sunday. Um, and Jimmy, you you ran this event and you TO'd the event. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so with the uh, with COVID sadly canceling all the uh, grand clashes and uh, a lot of uh, uh, eager players looking for uh, to uh, scratch the itch for competitive underworlds. I uh, was working with uh, Shuby um, uh, on the uh, Discord server to set up a large uh, online tournament. And uh, Shuby was great. It was a great host. Um, uh, I was the TO, and uh, we kind of uh, announced it online and sent some messages to players around the world. And uh, and had a wonderful turnout. So I think uh, there's certainly still a great appetite for competitive play in the community, and uh, a lot of folks that are very excited about this game. That was great to see. Um, first of all, uh, shout out and thank you to everyone who participated uh, in the tournament. Uh, it was great. All of you were great. Um, uh, you made it a very easy tournament to run, and I uh, hope everyone had a great time. Uh, so to quickly summarize, we had 30 players um, and it was a very talented field as well. So 12 of the players, and it may have been, may have been more, but 12 at least that I know of, had placed top 10 in a Grand Clash prior. Um, and pretty much everyone else had experience with uh, competitive underworlds at some setting. So this was a great room. I would rank this room up with any, you know, uh, any Grand Clash not in Warhammer World uh, that's out there. There was a, a great selection of talented players. Players from seven, seven or perhaps more uh, countries. So the ones that I counted were from uh, that I knew of were from USA, Canada, the UK, Germany, Italy, Russia, and Poland. Uh, there may have been more, uh, and uh, I apologize if I missed anyone. Uh, but seven countries and across eight different time zones. So um, uh, it was, uh, of course, a bit of a challenge to make sure everyone knew the time that the uh, tournament was starting. But uh, once we had that all ironed out, thanks to the folks who assisted in that. Um, you know, everyone showed up on time and, and yeah, it was great. Um, of those 30 players, there were 15 war bands represented, um, the, uh, which overall, I think we had a pretty, uh, pretty good spread. The, um, highest, uh, war band, uh, represented was Hrothgorn with seven players. So about 23% of the field. But after that, there was no war band that was represented more than three times. So it was a pretty broad spread of war bands. Um, uh, we ran a tournament, uh, over a single day, four rounds, and then came to a top two cut. That top two uh, cut championship game was played yesterday between uh, Duncan Bills and uh, um, Derek uh, Captain Murder, uh, Tracar, and it was a great final. Uh, and Duncan Bills came out victorious, which, um, of course, many folks in the U.S. who have played Duncan, not surprised at all. He's an outstanding player. So shout out to uh, Duncan and Derek for... Um, uh, for finishing so well and uh, and doing so well in the tournament and again a very very talented field uh, we um, uh, uh, a lot of folks were able to observe that game online which was a lot of fun they both took Hrothgorn um, they had different decks which was fun to see 
In fact, we found there were kind of multiple ways to run Hrothgorn. Uh, people ran them in this uh, event, which was cool, and we'll talk about later. Um, and uh, lastly, through the uh, help and graciousness of all the participants, I was able to gather a lot of extra data around um, uh, Warhammer Underworlds and in competitive play uh, through people being able to being generous with giving me some extra match data that they had that isn't usually recorded. So that's uh, some of what we'll talk about here. And, and again, thank you to everyone for all your help and uh, me compiling this data. And I think it'll be a lot of fun for us to review and talk about and hopefully can provide a good frame of reference for uh, folks discussing uh, competitive Underworlds play in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You um, First of all, thank you for running that event. I, I played and it was fun. Um, and I uh, really, really enjoyed looking at the data that you and, and Jonathan worked on and accumulated uh, during the event and, and kind of created this massive spreadsheet, which, you know, Jonathan loves that stuff. So it was great. It was eye opening. And I uh, I'm very excited to talk about it. But before we do that, I wanted to kind of briefly summarize how Jonathan and I did in the event. Um, it wasn't our best performance by far, <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> and so, Jonathan, if you want to go ahead and kick things off, uh, what did you take? Why did you take it? And how did you do? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I the, the the day before the event, I decided to take uh, Skaven. Um, I played them at LVO, and uh, they're probably one of my favorite war bands. Um, they're just they're so fast, and they're you, know, you can keep bringing guys back, and the weapons just blow people up. So. Um, I find that pretty enjoyable. I put in a couple cards I hadn't uh, used before. I had Uncontested in there. Um, I think that was probably the main difference um, to my LVO deck. I'll make sure that it's in the uh, show notes. I, I did get to take uh, effectively three distractions, so that was a lot of fun. Because mm -hmm. um, uh, only two, I could only take two at LVO. Um, and uh, so, it, you know, you know it's a... Pretty standard, I think. Um, I also took um, some amber bone weapons instead of uh, the, I think, sword breaker. So I had null stone sword, and then I had two amber bone weapons. So that was a little bit of a change as well. Um, and uh, I, I had a pretty good event. I ran into Lady Harrows twice, which I think is actually one of my worst matchups because um, it's very difficult for me to score supremacy and uncontested when they have as many or more push cards than I do. And they also have their uh, excellent card that allows me, or that forces me to not play any power cards. So if I'm setting up for Supremacy or Uncontested, and then they play that, and then um, they play Mischievous Spirits, or they just push a rat off of something, there's nothing I can do to, to really stop it. So um, uh, I went, I, I, I lost to the first Lady Harrows, and then I won the second game. And then I played against uh, Gitz, and that was a lot of fun. The very, very close games. Um, I managed to beat the Gitz in uh, two to one. And then I played against Rothcorn, and we actually tied. Um, we each won one game, and then we tied the third game. So, um, but uh, everyone I played was uh, really great at the game. Usually, it, I feel like at these tournaments, sometimes you have easier games. Uh, in the first couple rounds, and this the the quality was pretty much there the whole time. I played against uh, Gerard and Jason and uh, Constantine, and I think his uh, online name is Delarborist. I, I I forget how to say it. <laughs> yeah, definitely you, gonna you, know which one. Diabolist. 
Yeah, yeah. Diablerist, uh, and his uh, name's Christoph. Uh, great player. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was. I think that was my biggest takeaway from the event is that um, like there's no, there weren't any gimmies. Like everybody knew exactly what they were doing, and they were tight games. I think I think all but one of my matches went to three games, so it was a little bit exhausting in that uh, respect. But uh, it was a great time, and I ended up two, one, and one, and ended up tenth overall. So nice. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. I um I I also had my a fair slew of uh, tough matchups, um so I I will actually echo exactly what you're saying is that there were no match was a gimme. I've been to events in the past where certain matches, I uh, just felt like I was going through the motions, but over here uh, I was challenged and um, I had a great time. The second so the actually kind of the same day that we were talking about what we were gonna run, and you had opted with Skaven. Um, you know, Jimmy has been, you know, introducing this list around online about uh, um, aggro gets or amberbone gets rather. And so I kind of like the list. I've messed around with it a couple of times and I was like, sure, I'll take it. Um, and so I swapped a couple of cards to my liking and uh, played the event. And right before or like a day or two before the event, Jimmy and I are talking about this deck and we're going like, you know, this is what we think it's good at. This is what we think it's bad at it. And then Jimmy goes, I think this deck's worst matchups are like aggro hawthorn and then um you know maybe you know something that can do a lot of damage quickly and and so you know we were talking about it and we said yeah probably far striders as well um is, is not a good matchup at least and uh funny enough i played three hawthorn players and far striders <laughs> in the event uh which was a v- very hard i think um for a warband that has nine models um you know when people are trying to pew pew you down and then get Tome of Offering and Trophy Belt. Uh, it was interesting. So my first game, I play um, Harothgorn, and I apologize for my opponent's advance. I didn't record the names. Um, but I won one, he won one, and then I got the third. And uh, I won the board roll all three times, which I thought was pretty interesting. So it kind of helped me out a little bit, trying to get Supremacy and, and Temp V. And the second game, I played Derek. So that was a fun one. Um, I... I think board roll played a really big part in this game, and, and I think that's why I'm looking forward to discussing uh, that aspect later and the data you collected. But uh, I took the, any when I had the objectives in game one, I won. But then when Derek had the objectives, which is game two and three, he beat me. And it's really interesting because, and I don't want to get too much into his deck, but his deck pretty much revolves around destroying objectives, like Hrothcorn players love to do. So it was really challenging because if you if you park Hrothgorn on an objective with te- uh, with survival instincts and you flip the other two, there's no way I can score supremacy or temporary victory, uh, which uh, which was very well played on his part. Um, and no surprise he made it to the final. Uh, third match I played another Hrothgorn player, um, and he was more aggressive, but I think I got some great upgrades and, and cards early on, which helped me take him down both games quite early. So I won two zero there. And then lastly, I played Forest Riders. Uh, so this is by Kildo Redato. His name is also Jonathan. Great player. He's probably the the authority on Forest Riders right now online. Uh, didn't go so hot. Um, I got 2-0'd pretty quick. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, man, I got a new respect for the Forest Riders. I mean, I, I've always enjoyed them, but uh, they he played them very interestingly. It's funny, he had this card where if you have an upgrade... And someone attacks you and fails, he can attack you back. And so I'm here trying to score great, uh, keep chopping with these gits. And I'm like shooting with like stick it divs and red cap just to, you know, get some attacks going. 
and you know two fury doesn't really hit and then he'll like say oh you missed i'll get to attack he'll shoot me back and then he'll push me back and you know uh, collapse or something so it was it was kind of funny um but it was it was a good game and i had a good time so i ended up uh in the bottom half not my proudest uh showing but i think a lot of fun and uh you know i need to read the meta next time better i think so <laughs> cool um <clears throat> i guess uh again jimmy just thanks for running it i know that we had to you know we got to play for what like six or seven hours of the event and you had to sit there and run it so uh thanks a lot it was it was definitely a lot of fun um let's see do we let's i guess let's dive into uh some of the data that um you collected um what did you collect and what do you want to talk about first jimmy yeah thanks yeah so first uh um, thanks to you, JD, for um, helping uh, me take a look at some, some of this data. Um, you know, you're pretty good at that with all the updates. You provide them well of power. Uh, so it was fun taking a look at this stuff together. So yeah. um, the data I collected um, was on uh, board roll-off. So who won the board roll-off? Also, from that board roll-off uh, decision, who then placed three objectives? So then in the inverse, we know who took board alignment. Uh, also, asked for glory differential for each game. Um, just by nature of being the TO and asking for the decks, I have the decks and all the cards, and obviously we have the Warband info. So uh, with that, we're actually able to um, learn a lot of interesting things about, about the game. And again, I wanna stress, um, even though the sample size is, I guess you could argue a little bit small, we have uh, 30 players, um, 139 games, or sorry, 141 games recorded after the championship. Um, but I would, uh, in our opinion at least, uh, I think this is a pretty representative data set overall. Uh, it's probably not high-powered, but I think it's uh, uh, something that, that gives a good insight into how the meta is right now, given the fact that all the players were pretty good, and most people were probably making uh, relatively optimal decisions. It wasn't like we had we took a slice from a bunch of local events that had a lot of folks who are brand new at the game. I think everyone here um, understood the game pretty well and was making good decisions for themselves. So. That yeah. helps when you collect data like this. Uh, so yeah, I guess I'll start off with um, probably some of the most interesting uh, information that uh, I personally learned from the event. And I'm curious what you guys think as well is the uh, info on the board placement roll-off. So um, first of all, I think there are, um, when you think of the board placement roll-off, for some warbands, it's a pretty big deal. For some warbands, it may not be quite as important. But I think everyone's curious to know uh, how much does it matter? I think uh, um, I've certainly felt in the past that at various points it's mattered more or mattered less. And overall, I'm kind of curious uh, how how important is it? At a very high level, uh, it turns out the board placement roll-off um, in general, if you look at the average of all the games, 139 um, uh, games, and actually I don't think we have the championship games in this data set right now. So we'll, just go, with, we'll go with 139 games. Uh, the winner of the board roll-off won 70 times. So that's 50.4%. Uh, so statistically, half and half, I mean, there was no difference, right? But that's overall across all the games. I think it's very interesting, though, once you take a closer look into that data, uh, where it matters and in what situations. And I think that's, that's cool to know. So first of all, the most interesting thing I found was that the um, the board roll-off increases in importance across games one to games three. So in this data set, uh, if you won the roll-off in game one, 
you won the game only 40% of the time. So that's below 50, so below average. But if you won the uh, the board roll-off in game two, that increased to 54%. And if you won the board roll-off in game three, you won the game 60% of the time. Wow. So I think the increase, um, kind of the stepwise increase there um, was was very cool to see. And uh, curious to get your guys' thoughts, but off the top of my head, I think that just communicates to to us that as you know more about the opposing deck and about your deck and how they play, uh, basically you'll be able to make a better judgment on uh, uh, if to take uh, board alignment, if to take the objectives, and how to align the board. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll kind of I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think I echo that. It is interesting to see that win rates increase. So I guess when you talk about 60% in game three, um, you're absolutely correct. Both players know the most information about their opponent's deck, the game state, strategies, what worked and what didn't, and and how to how to compete. Um, what I am really interested in is actually the such a low percentage in game one. Um, generally, uh, in my opinion, like when I play against a warband, I kind of have a general idea of how they can be played in the meta. And it's usually one of two ways, and I guess it gets gets tough when you know those two ways are either aggro or objective or control. But in the, in most situations, you can kind of tell that if you're playing against uh, reavers, for example, then you know they're probably going to come at you eventually. Or if you're playing against Grimwatch, then they're probably going to be chasing after objectives. So um, I am curious as to why 40% is such a low number. I do agree that it makes sense that it should increase over time. Yeah, yeah, and a quick a quick note there. Um, yeah, I wouldn't uh, look at any of these numbers that we have as like an absolute number. Like you know, if you um, you know if you win the roll off game one, you're only winning forty percent of the time. I think this is just what this data set says. That's certainly within a standard deviation of I don't know. I, I would guess probably you know five percent, five six percent. So yeah, um, perhaps. You know, perhaps 45 percent. I don't know. It, it could come up in a different, uh, uh, similar tournament result or things like that. So, uh, but but yeah, I think this the fact that the signal is lower is interesting. And, and to your point, um, uh, may indicate that um, sometimes you know, and sometimes you may not know exactly how to play, um, how to play in game one, how to play to your opponent. Uh, and I think maybe that represents the fact that you don't just don't have the complete information in front of you. Yeah, you know, go ahead, go ahead, JD. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I think to me, like, I don't I don't think it's worth focusing too much on the fact that it's 40, but I, the fact that it's under 50% seems important to me. Um, and I think you're right that it, it probably is just an indication that uh, if you're going to make a mistake with the board placement, <clears throat> it's probably going to be in that first game. <clears throat> and because you haven't played the deck, then you don't really know what to expect. So you, you could make a mistake. Um, but the cool thing to me, I think... Um, is that it really seems like if you lose board roll off in the first game, um, there's a pretty good chance you can still, you can take it if you have a good deck. Um, and then, but it does seem that as you have more information in the second game, you know, the second game winner, uh, tends to be the person that won boards. Cause at that point you really shouldn't be making mistakes with board placement. You should, you know, have learned how their deck works and then, uh, be able to set up optimally. And then, the interesting thing about the third game is in order to get to a third game, you have to have lost a game and won a game. And that means that you, you know, probably definitely understand 
how the other person's uh, deck works. And then that board advantage, you know, has increased to 60, which is, you know, a full 20% more than uh, it was in the first round. So that's that's pretty incredible to me. Um, and it would be cool if we can track this in more events and see, you know, over time uh, how much of the third game is decided by that role. Yeah, great, great point. You know, another thing that may influence that 60% in game three is that, uh, you know, for – uh, for games that for matches that go to a game three, that's probably a closer matchup anyway, right? So any marginal uh, benefit that you gain from say winning board roll off or winning placement roll off, that kind of stuff probably impacts the game a little bit more than in matchups where there's a bigger disparity. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of mm-hmm. things to consider, but uh, but yeah, I think we're definitely thinking on the right track with this one. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point because the only reason you would have got to the game three is because you know, both of you are uh, probably similar in skill. So any mm-hmm. advantage that you can get probably gets compounded. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that, that was super interesting to find out that the most important roll off is, you know, not game game one or game two, but probably game three. Uh, and a game two is probably more important than game one. Another uh, um, cool thing that uh, we, t- we discovered through looking at the data is that um, winning board roll-off for games one and two in a row did not correlate to an increased winning percentage. Uh, so actually, <laughs> this may just be, you know, error um, by the fact that we didn't have enough data. But in our data set, at least, uh, more 2-0 winners of a round actually lost board roll-off both times than won it both times. So this uh, goes into something interesting that a lot of folks will discuss in the meta. And this is, of course, again, this is over all the matchups. So, and we'll go into the third point, which is that this may be a little, this data um, looks a little bit different if you are uh, looking at individual warband performance. But um, I think uh, warband performance in different styles. But uh, a lot of things that I've wondered is if winning board roll-off twice in a row leads to a greater propensity of two and O's, because then that would kind of feel bad, right? The fact one random roll-off fact that, you win it twice in a row, which happens 25% of the time, uh, if you really have an increased chance of losing that round. Because uh, that, that would seem that that roll-off roll would have too much of an impact on the game. So I've wondered if that was the case. Uh, I've heard anecdotally people say, oh, I lost board roll-off twice in a row and then lost the game. And that kind of makes sense because winning anything in the game, in any roll-off in the game does commute an advantage. But uh, I do think from this data set at least, and from this meta with these warbands, um, it did not correlate to an increased winning percentage. So that was that was cool and interesting to see, and uh, perhaps allows us to take a look uh, at ourselves and um, and maybe be a little more introspective and why we lose games and not um, look at the roll off as being the most important thing. Because I know I've, I've looked at that in the past, and if I've lost you know board roll off too many times in a matchup, I'm like, ah, well, that puts me at too much of a disadvantage. But perhaps um, it doesn't matter quite as much as uh, as as we think in our heads when we're looking at reasons why we, we lost the game. Perhaps it's uh, it's it's the dreaded player error, which, uh, you know, of course, I never commit errors in games, but uh, I'm sure you guys do. I, I never do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good points. I think one of the biggest things to actually consider is this is actually the first event where we had Hrothgorn and the Wormspat um, actually in full force playing in, in a competitive environment. So I think a lot of the um, a lot of the the data actually may or may not be skewed because of this fact. I mean, if you think about it, 
even if you know if you if you match up against Hearthworn and you don't know what type of Hearthworn deck it is or or who's playing it or what the style is or maybe you don't have enough experience, then you'll probably if you win the roll off pick whatever board setup you're comfortable with and you can make an assumption and then you can and you can make an error and then you can maybe try something else and make the error again. I think what this data primarily indicates is that you you know you you go about player data and, and warband data. You mentioned that, that phrase earlier. I think in this situation, player data is that the better player will win more often than not, regardless of the board roll-off. And, and the reasons that contribute to this are because, obviously, matchup is important, but, you know, deck deck design. You know, in theory, we talk about Underworlds a lot. We talk about the competitive nature of it. And, and we talk about building decks that can account for almost everything. I mean, I, I know that phrase is a little little uh, broad but at the end of the day like if you build a deck that doesn't matter whether you win or, or lose boards and you're able to accomplish your objective regardless then you know you will be successful and in this situation i think what this data indicates is that there are people who built good decks and are able to make follow their game plan regardless of what uh situations or opponents they find in their way yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and I think it's cool. I, th- I think that one of the things to keep in mind with the the two and O numbers is um, basically because you went two and O, that means that um, you know you didn't lose any games, and because we can see that who won the roll off, you know, if you it doesn't really seem like it matters that much in those two and O games. Um, it just makes me think that you know skill and warband choice and stuff probably has a much larger effect um, than simply the roll off. Um, we did notice that um, if you in the in the games where each player won the roll off one time, um, the person that won the second time um, did seem like they won uh, a lot of their games, but I think most of these are just skill um, more than board roll off, which I think is the coolest thing because although we did notice that it that doesn't really go for particular factions, um, I think we noticed that Grimwatch, when they lost the board roll, um, they tended to lose a lot of their games. Um, I can find what that number is. Um, 80%, yeah. I think. So Yeah, I'll talk about it next point. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah, we can go to the next point then. Yeah, another thing too um, is something that um, uh, that we all talked about before this is that uh, one thing also to keep in mind, um, you know, the board roll off is just one component of the game. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that I think when we get big signals like the 40, 54, 60, like that kind of makes sense. I think uh, there are other times um, when we have perhaps smaller signals like we did with that. Um, uh, the last uh, statistic we mentioned on winning boards for games one and two, you know, there are a lot of other random elements in the game. So if, if, and since we didn't collect the data, for example, on, you know, I don't know how many crits for roll and attack versus defense dice in that game, you know, one player or another, that probably has, if one person rolled a lot more crits, it probably has a much bigger impact in the game than the board roll off. Right. But we wouldn't see that in this data set. So there are other random elements that can impact this. That's why, you know, we're, uh, we're, to tend to make any you know a big judgments not to mention the fact that you know there's a lot of um that there aren't, there aren't a ton of players in this uh sample size and you know there's a lot of other elements going on in these games but um you know i think it is 
it is cool not to see that there was a huge correlation with winning the roll-off games one and two and also winning uh, and going 2-0 and winning, the, winning that match. I think that was pretty cool not to see. Yeah, I think one thing I'd like to point out is that a lot of the data in this section just makes logical sense, right? Like, as the more games you play, the games should be closer in nature. And then as you play games, the player with the better overall skill level should win the game. And I think that's what this data demonstrates. And that's why I personally really like these three points that you've 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 aggregated is that it just, you know, reinforces that whether you have good streaks of dice or bad streaks of dice or bad matchups or good matchups, if you're if you are the better player, you should win more often than not. Yeah, better player or, you know, let's say better matchup or, or something like that. Or, or or like I said, perhaps there are other random elements that have come in that have really influenced a certain matchup and, and that, that can happen as well. And we're not keeping track of that. So, yeah, but right. good, good points. So uh, on to the uh, third point. So as we've kind of built up and set up here, um, overall, winning, overall winning the board roll-off did not increase chances of winning the game. So like I said, over 139 games, the board roll-off winner, excuse me, won 70 times. Actually, I think this is a, this would be skewed a little bit by the the final where Duncan um, two close games, but Duncan uh, won two and zero over Derek, but Derek won the roll off both times in that situation. Um, mm-hmm. But however, there were some war bands who definitely care a lot more about this role than others, uh, like Grimwatch, as JD mentioned before. So we had two Grimwatch players, uh, both um, uh, good players knew what they were doing, uh, Nick Ramone uh, and then uh, Matt Martin. Uh, we don't have a huge um, sample size here, again, sadly, but if you look at, they never played each other, so they uh, had a total of uh, uh, 20 games played in this tournament. So there are 20 games with Grimwatch um, uh, in the matchup. In that, in those matchups, the board roll-off winner ended up winning the game 15 um, out of the 20 times, so 75% of the time. So I think that was that was interesting to see because I think that while again it's a small sample size that that potentially could show that Grimwatch care a lot more about this roll off than perhaps other warbands or at least Grimwatch the way uh, the current meta decks are just constructed care a lot more about their roll off than other warbands. Yeah, and the neat thing about the way that the numbers ended up for the Grimwatch in particular is that those two players actually. Uh, won the roll-off 10 out of the 20 games. So their their roll-off number was perfectly average. Um, they got it half the time. But then it looks like they uh, eight of the times they lost the roll-off, they lost. And then eight of the times they won, they won. So like that's, that's pretty massive. Um, and it makes sense because when you're playing Grimwatch, if the you know if the other player is aggressive and they can set up the boards wide and then rush everybody in, then you don't want that. Um, and if they need objectives like thorns or gets or something, they'll take the three objectives and force you to come get them, and you don't really want that either. So I think Grimwatch almost more than anybody else um, probably do care about this role. Well, I wonder what's the data look like for thorns and 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 gets right? Like, because mm-hmm. where I'm going with this is. What if it's because the style of objective play is just more wholly dependent on that dice roll rather than, um, like, you know, other aspects of play? I mean, I know that 
the one Thorns player in the event played a more aggressive version. But mm-hmm. I guess it's just maybe it might be an interesting topic to discuss and maybe at another time. But it just seems like when I you're playing. I think we have those numbers. You, oh, um, do we? Because yeah, the, the, the Gits numbers were actually very similar to the Grimwatch. Um, the Gits actually won the roll-off a lot more um, than you would normally. Um, they won it 76% of the time, mm-hmm. uh, those players. So, um, and then of those times when they won, uh, 80% of their wins were when they won. Um, or when they won, they won 80 uh, Sorry. When they won the roll-off and got three objectives, ideally, is when they yeah, won 80% yeah. of their games. Right. 80% of their wins were when they had the... Right. Uh, when they won the roll-off. Which makes so it sense. seems like Gits also kind of rely on that because they want the objectives. Or maybe they don't want, you know, Magor setting up wide. On the line. Off. Right. The really interesting about the one Thorns player um, was that that deck seems like it uh, was sort of designed to not need the uh the roll off as much because it doesn't right. have supremacy um it only has uh, path to victory and then it has um temporary yeah temporary victory which you know you just need three objectives for a second so and that player had the misfortune to actually only win the roll off once out of their 10 games <laughs> wow. but they were still able to um go 3 and 0 over the course of the event um and that was 7 game wins and three game losses so um that was actually really cool to me that it seems like that player um sort of three and one right three and one yeah three and one yeah three and one matches but seven and three games yeah makes sense yeah um So, so i think i just think that's cool well what that data indicates to me is if you rely less on where those objectives are and again, you just focus on your game plan no matter what the board setup looks like. You will statistically do better. Um, granted, as you know, you've both mentioned a couple times, small sample size. But if there is a less reliance on, um, I guess, board setup, or specifically in this case where the objectives are placed, then it seems like you'll just do better overall, which also kind of means that as you were mentioning, Jimmy, certain warbands or certain styles of play do rely on the board roll more than perhaps others. Uh, yeah. And so I find that quite interesting. And, and you know, you mentioned this Thorns player doesn't run Supremacy. Um, maybe he was onto something, right? Like, you, maybe it's because there's so many distractions in play. Maybe because he thought it was slow. We don't know his exact reasoning. But what we can identify is that maybe... Supremacy is too slow of a card, or maybe it's too game state or game board dependent. Um, so that's just information that's just running through my head right now, and and I find that quite fascinating. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. It was, so um, I think it's a, that's a great summary. Um, overall, I think uh, the board roll off probably matters a little bit less than 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 people on average think. I think it matters more as you continue through the matchups, and once you get to game three, it is a little more important. And I think uh, overall it's uh, a little bit warband and style dependent. So yeah, if you if you want to be less exposed to the board roll-off, I think you know the first thing you do is take a look at the warband and deck you're taking. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Well, do you want to move on to uh, any of the other data you've collected? 
Sure. Yeah. So um, th- this part will be pretty quick, uh, but I think it's just, it's great to know as a frame of reference because um, frankly, before this, I had no frame of reference for some of this stuff. So we took uh, um, data on glory differential for each of the games. Uh, so uh, as I've said many times, and I guess uh, reflexively, if you need to say this, being uh, cautious with how to interpret data, but these results are likely very meta dependent. It may uh, dip be this data may have been different at the January Nottingham Grand Clash, maybe different in you know six months to a year, uh, whenever the next uh, Grand Clash is actually going to be uh, live Grand Clash is going to be. Um, but uh, I thought it was cool just to take a look. So the average glory differential over the course um, of all the games was 6.3 glory. Um, so again, this is a cool frame of reference for anyone uh, you know paying attention to this who always wondered kind of what's average if um, you know they had felt that maybe losing by uh, six glory meant that they got blown out. Like actually, that's probably pretty average. Um, that changed slightly depending on which game it was, which I think uh, makes a lot of sense. So for games one and two, the average glory diff was about the same, 6.5 glory for game one and 6.6 for game two. Uh, but for game three, the average glory differential decreased to 4.7 glory, uh, which yeah, would make sense since the matches which go to game three are typically closer. Um, and lastly, uh, of all the games, uh, 28% of the games, so about a quarter of them, were decided by three glory or less. 48%, so about half of the games, were decided by between four to nine glory. And 23% of the games, again, about a quarter, were decided by 10 glory or more. So that's kind of the rough spread of glory differentials that we got uh, over the course of this event. I think that all you know, makes sense to, um, uh, to listeners and makes sense to us. I mean, it seems like a pretty average spread of the games that, that I've played. Um, and, uh, and yeah, but just cool to know as a frame of reference, uh, and in future events, this may change, but at least for this, um, this event, that's what the uh, glory differential data set said. Cool. Yeah. I, I don't think any of that's really surprising, but it's really cool to have it. And like one of the things I always say in my data posts, like this data may not be very good, but it's the best data that we have. So <laughs> like, yeah, you know. yeah, great point. Yeah. I think it's really cool. I mean, it just reinforces the fact that this is a, a really well-designed game and i mean if you think about it you know almost half the games per this meta-dependent data um are are within the are, are very are closer than what you would think um yeah. not much glory um you know if the average is six then you have 49 seems about right and then you know the other half of the time they're either really close or they're blowouts which again makes total sense and I think it's so cool that we play this game that, uh, you know, we put a lot of energy and thought into and, and uh, statistically it, it rewards us, which I think is very neat. Yeah. yeah, yeah no. Pretty cool I, stuff. So go ahead. I think that's one of my biggest takeaways from like the board roll off and the glory information is um, just like how well the system kind of works right now. Um, like it, it just seems like the game is really well designed. So it's probably one of the reasons we like it so much. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, uh, so uh, other information that we're able to take a look at, so that we have the decks, so we are, we are able to take a look at the cards in the decks. Um, and then um, to, to stress again, yeah, this was a, a group of very, very knowledgeable players. They probably uh, took decks that uh, would give them the best chance to win. Uh, and uh, the first point that um, I wanted to bring up, which was uh, was very interesting. So we're in the meta right now. 
think this is the first meta we've had where there are uh, two uh, distractions essentially um, that are universals. So mm-hmm. we have distraction and nightmare in the shadows. And we've always known that those cards are good. Uh, those cards are good not just for um, uh, in playing against, let's say, an objective player, but also if you're playing aggressive, it's great to move an opposing model without a, without a role. Uh, but I think the prevalence at which these cards were taken was very interesting. So two-thirds of the field, uh, so 67% of the field, took both Distraction and Nightmare in the Shadows. Uh, wow. 70, 77% of the field took at least one of them. But then if you include faction cards, which apply a similar effect, so an enemy push, uh, that would include... Uh, you know, an escaping card, scratching in the shadows. That would include, I would include a card like Howling Vortex for Thorns in there. If you include those cards, 87% of players took at least one enemy push. Uh, so I thought that was uh, that was pretty staggering. I don't think I think the last time you know you would see a card or a type of card taken 80, 90% of the time. I think we're talking about stuff like Ready for Action and Escalation. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, I think it's interesting taking a look at that and looking at how people maybe view this meta and what they took that they felt had um, uh, would enable them to be successful. Yeah, first of all, rest in peace to uh, Escalation and Ready for Action. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, it just makes sense, right? Uh, if you're able to alter your opponent's game state, um, even by one hex, that's huge. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple of factors that come into play here. Uh, there was an objective-dominated meta, so people are tired of it, so they're attacking for it. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a big boon for aggro as well. It makes charge distances uh, shorter. It makes your opponent's precarious counting of hexes and making sure that they're within or right just outside your range uh, moot. Um, but additionally, um, this data is staggering. I mean, if you if you think about it, just from a universal field perspective, um, almost 70% of the field is taking two distractions. Um, that is the new norm. I don't know if that is the right norm. Um, you know, Jonathan and I have talked about this at length in the past, where we feel like um, it takes away from some of the warbands who already have that innate distraction, like Savoco Guard, or in Jonathan's case, Skaven. Um, so what you're <laughs> doing is, you know, you're kind of giving this innate advantage to some warbands to everyone. And then some people just really don't need the help. Right, like like Harrow's, for example. But then there are some more bands who have no pushes, um, like offensive pushes in this case, or disruption pushes, and, and that are just like so happy in taking both because it's upping their game. And so I think it's quite fascinating because it seems like you either have to, in a way, this might end or significantly hamper the whole objective style game that we were so used to, which isn't a bad thing. But if we're talking about play experience um, and balance, then I don't know. That doesn't seem quite balanced to me. I could be wrong. What do you guys think? Um, I mean, to me, I, I honestly, I think I was surprised that only 66% had both distractions. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think if you look at the particular decks that didn't, I think I think that uh, it makes sense, like a Far Strider deck or a, a Curse Breaker deck or the Thorns deck, which probably had uh, the other push spell um but uh i mean i think it's obvious that these are powerful cards i just did my um rating for the online game and they have distraction and i gave distraction a four out of four um it's one of the best cards in the game um 
And uh, I think one of the points that uh, Jimmy uh, mentioned here is um, how many objective decks there were at all um, and how many, you know, had cards like Supremacy. Um, do you want to talk about that, Jimmy? Yeah, yeah, great point. So I think the previous meta that we were all playing in, which um, uh, I guess we'll call it before the Wormspat and Hrothgorn release and um, mm-hmm. kind of the meta with the, the Grimwatch gift set and Ripa's meta. Um, the meta that, um, uh, you know, was present for the January Nottingham Grand Clash and LVO. Um, yeah. Uh, also for, I think there was a German skirmish around the same time frame. So uh, there was a ton of Thorns, ton of Grimwatch, uh, temporary victory. I think, I mean, it was everywhere. Um, very interesting how that has changed a little bit. So it's, since then, since the Hrothgorn and Wormsbat release, we um, we've gotten another distraction. We've gotten two more aggressive warbands to probably play pretty well into horde warbands. And in the Prague uh, skirmish, which occurred maybe a month ago, uh, there was a lot more aggressive warbands and fewer objective-based uh, warbands. And this event did that was similar. So. Out of the 30 players, only seven players took temporary victory, um, and only one player in the top five had it, and he plays fifth, and that was the Thorns player. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and also you mentioned supremacy. So, of the 30, only four players took supremacy, and there was only uh, one player in the top 10 that had it, and it was you, Jonathan, who placed 10th. So, I think that yeah. that's very different from the previous meta that we saw. It's taken kind of a big swing. Um, I think. You know, we can we can talk about the reasons for that. Um, uh, one of them may honestly be that folks were tired of Thorns and Grimwash, but um, I think there were good players who took Thorns and Grimwash this event, and um, the Grimwash players at least took uh, pretty meta decks that were very good and had have been very good for several months, and the Thorns player went a little more aggressive. Um, and yeah, I think the uh, Grimwash players placed, I think, 15th and, uh, and 19th and had a um, overall... Uh, uh, overall, a very slight but slight losing record in this tournament. So it's a, uh, it's very interesting to see this shift. And curious, what do you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, you mentioned that I had supremacy. I think I scored it once um, over the course of the event. And I, I guess I will say I don't th- think Skaven are the best at scoring uh, supremacy, but they also have some tricks that you know allow them, in some ways, to be better at it than others. Because I can summon a uh, you know, I can summon somebody on near one or on one with mischievous spirits, moving the objective onto the starting hex. So, you know, I have my tricks, um, but I would probably take it out of my deck, um, especially looking at the two um, man trapper decks, um, which involve a lot of objective removal. Um, I don't know if I can rely on there even being three objectives on the board all the time. And I, you know, I definitely don't know if I can rely on being able to get to them. Um so, interestingly, I don't think currently modern competitive objective play involves end-phase cards like Supremacy. Um, I think that uh, probably the Thorns deck um, is probably a good example of you know the better way to play it. Um, if objective removal becomes really meta, um, I think maybe cards like Coveted Spoils, which you know you could theoretically score by holding the one and only objective or two only objectives. Um, I think that might get better. Um, I think uncontested may be better. If uh, the enemy is going to destroy two or three objectives, all you have to do is hold one or hold two, and then you know make sure they aren't they're holding the other one. Um, I think that might be 
the new way to play. So I do think that there's some, uh, you know, there's always going to be tech and there's always going to be ways that the meta will adapt, um, which is one of the coolest things about this game. But um, I do think it's hard because if a deck takes five anti-objective cards in it, then <laughs> like it could be hard to, you know, play a traditional Gits or Thorns um, style. I mean, the, the way I think about objective play now is um, the way we thought about objective play in Nightfall with keys and, you know, end phase scoring like Supremacy and Tactical 1 and 2 and things like that. Um, I think that's pretty much dead now. I think uh, objective play now is more about uh, score immediately and um then the the end phase cards uh probably like the thorns deck which had you know opening gambit um and similar cards like that that uh was and had much more of an aggro bent to it um no i think those are great points i i think you absolutely make sense you know the tech is there um but i, I also really like jimmy's point where he mentioned there's maybe a bit of warband fatigue you know where um you know we're tired of seeing uh, thorns and Grimwatch everywhere. We, we're tired of playing against them. We're maybe even tired of playing them ourselves. Um, so I think that does have a role. Again, 30-player um, 30, 30 event, excellent data, but maybe not as um, uh, as comprehensive as we would like, and, and, and hopefully we can get more data over the course of the next couple months. But I think the biggest thing here for me is um, when it comes to temporary victory and, and supremacy, uh, it, it comes with warbands that are kind of like numero uno on the bad list right now, right? We have uh, Thorns and Grimwatch, and then, you know, maybe Profiteers can flex into it, which is another top warband. So we're, we're talking about these warbands that, you know, have dominated for some time in their own respective metas, and even in recent metas. And so I think for someone who is looking at this event and saying, oh, I get to play this really cool, fun, competitive event, from the comfort of my home, um, you know, and, and, and because the atmosphere and the vibe is a little different, you may or may not necessarily take the most competitive uh, event. I mean, you know, like, Jonathan, you decided what you were going to play the day before. However, you know, if this was a like a, a Grand Clash that you paid for, traveled for, got ho- hotel booking for, and then you probably would have given them more thought, right? So I think, I think not to undervalue or undermine the, the results of the event, I think it's a fantastic event. But I also think that there was perhaps a different mindset walking into this event in regards of how serious I think some people were going to take it, which I think is also relevant information um, or something to to consider. Because um, while you do see Duncan winning the event, who is an amazing player who has placed very highly over the last year and a half, um, I think a lot of the like I don't think I don't know if this meta is indicative of of like the true the true meta. I think Hrothgorn dominating and being popular is very accurate. I was very surprised with the warm spout results. I don't know if that is just something that people underestimated or or really just I, I really don't know. I think I, I was very particularly interested by that. The low number of thorns in Grimwatch seemed odd to me. Um, so maybe the meta has changed and it just violently disagrees with my perception of the game, which could be the case and I'm willing to admit that. But I, I, I also just don't know if, um, you know, we would see that low number of temporary victories uh, style warbands. Um, I think it's just yeah. food for thought. 
You, yeah, you mean like if if there was like a hundred and something tournament in the UK, you'd probably expect more Grimmage and more Thorns and things like that, right? Yeah, exactly yeah. so. No, no, no yeah. that's, a, that's a very fair point. I, I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, it wasn't like a plane flight on the line here, right? So I think uh, <laughs> folks were, um, I, I think there were a lot of good warbands that were taken, but you're right, some folks may have uh, opted for uh, a less optimal warband, uh, for example. But I think that's probably a great segue into the, um, the warband uh, data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. So, so as I mentioned, there were 15 warbands represented, uh, which uh, I think overall, while uh, Amon makes a very good point, that um, we didn't have a really high representation of Thorns and Grimwatch. There were just three of those warbands. Um, but, um, and I think in any event, like let's say there's a big grand clash in the UK right now, there'd probably be a very high uh, number of Hrothgorns there too. Uh, we had seven of those in this event. Uh, but overall, I thought there was a pretty good spread. Uh, seven Hrothgorns. I think there were th- the next highest was three Rippas. Uh, we had uh, we had three Skaven players uh, actually, and some of them did uh, did, did reasonably well, uh, JD included. And then um, yeah, yes, then after yes. that, I think everyone yeah, yes yes. <laughs> after that, there were uh, you know just a, just a pretty broad spread. Uh, one thing that was very cool, and Amon alluded to this earlier. So after three rounds, we had a basically a top four that was going to decide our top two. Because um, there were four undefeated players uh, at that point, they were, they were all three and zero, and then the top two um, f- after round four would go compete in the championship. It was two uh, Hrothgorn players, uh, D- uh, Duncan Bills and Derek, which you know makes a lot of sense, but also two uh, Wormspat players, which was very cool to see. Uh, Zach Newcomb and uh, Matt Angry, also known as uh, Sean Matson. So credit to those guys um, that they went three and zero to that point. Um, now, Hrothgorn won both of those matchups. However, both of those matchups went to three games and were pretty close. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was very cool, especially given the fact that uh, there's been a lot of talk on Wormspat and uh, uh, how viable they are from a tournament perspective. I think it's cool to see two players. Uh, um, this is, you know, uh, near and dear to my heart, take warbands that are not as, you know, perhaps accepted in the meta and doing very well with them. So, you know, shout out to those guys. Um, another interesting thing that um, I think you're able to see from the warbands and the and it's probably a combination of the deck choice as well is that among the seven Hrothgorn decks, there are probably three different builds, which was pretty cool that we can talk about. Um, and lastly, uh, and we mentioned this before, um, Grimwatch were there. They were competitive, only two players, but two uh, two good players, very good players. Uh, but overall, had a very slight losing record. Wasn't you know they weren't. Uh, totally smashed, but I think they were uh, one game, one match off from a uh, even record. So a slight losing record, which was uh, interesting to see as well. So, um, so first of all, yeah, what do you guys think about the uh, the Worms bet? Uh, I just want to shout out Max Bernstein. Eat it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of Max, it's probably actually uh, good to go through the uh, the top ten because he placed a uh, uh, seventh. Shout out to him with uh, Thundrix. But yeah, the top ten in the end. Was Duncan with Hrothgorn, Derek with Hrothgorn, and third um, was Zach with uh, Wormspat. Fourth was uh, Daniel Garini from Italy with Rippas. Fifth was um, Yuri with Thorns. Sixth was Jonathan Colson with Forest Riders. Shout out to him, uh, did a great job. Three and one with Forest Riders. Seventh um, was, oh crap. Um, do you guys have, 
Oh, oh yeah, that's right. Max. Yeah, Max. Max got seven. <laughs> it's, it's very easy <laughs> to overlook Max. It's okay. It, it, it's so easy. <laughs> no, I, the, the, the thing I like about Max is that he'll talk about a war band. He'll say that it's bad, and then it'll win or do really, really well. So I need to coordinate with him next time, get him to trash talk what I'm planning to play, and then you know we can... Then I can win stuff. That's right. <laughs> the best part is when he trash talks Warman and then loses to it. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. He had a, he had a great comment on Facebook. He said uh, his podcast is the warning shot of uh, of Warman. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was awesome. So yeah, shout out to Max. He did well. He placed seventh with uh, Thundrix. Um, eighth was Sean Madsen, uh, also known as Mad Angry with Wurstbat. Uh, ninth was uh, Constantine with. Uh, Hrothgorn and 10th was JD with uh, Skaven. So that was the top 10. Yeah. Very nice. Solid spread. Um, one thing I liked is, uh, and before we jump into Wormspat, seriously, um, one thing that I was looking at the data was that there are actually more Shadespire Warbands than Night Vault Warbands present uh, in the event. So we may be seeing a, a bit of resurgence for the Shadespire Warbands, I think. Um, it also just could be, you know, people want to revisit their old loves and try to make them viable. I think uh, Jonathan, uh, who goes by Kilderadado, has done this excellently with the Far Striders. Um, but I was I was I was actually kind of surprised. It was only by three percent, but um, still, uh, that is that is something I didn't think I'd see. Uh, yeah, it, that was cool too. I agree. And uh, yeah, perhaps maybe due to the fact that to your point, Amon, you know, folks weren't taking you know maybe the optimal choice for all the for. Uh, for the warband they chose in this event sometimes. So, um, but yeah, very cool to see folks try to do well with those warbands. Yes, yes. Yeah, one of the cool things about Beastcrape to me also, though, is that I think a lot of these warbands are as competitive as they have been in at least since the beginning of the second season. Um, so I, a lot of these are very playable, which is cool. Yeah, I'm actually upset there's no Wild Hunt. So <laughs> you have my written commitment or verbal commitment then the next one I'm playing Wild Hunt. Because you need I to need, be the wildness need, that you want. I need to, see. to channel like, my inner Legane <laughs> and, yeah. and try to swipe at you and miss. <laughs> and uh, last thing on that too, um, I remember um, I've heard Mike Carlin make this point, which is a great one, uh, that as you as a season progresses, uh, as more universals come out, you'll see more more of the older warbands emerge as being viable because there's just a greater pool of universal cards, and I think that that makes a lot of sense because a lot of their for the older warbands, especially season one, uh, they really have to supplement their decks with universals because some of the, um, especially season one cards are just not very good. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Carlin is usually Great. wise in his words <laughs> most of the time. But for some reason, bailed on us for this event, so shame on him. Yeah, I, I don't know. He he was too busy eating Marmite. <laughs> oh my god, it's disgusting. <laughs> I think he had a prior commitment, unfortunately. He he did. He did. Hope he gets to play the next time. Yeah, yeah, that'd um, be fun. But uh, let's 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 talk about Wormspat. So you know, you you obviously mentioned that they had a great outing. I actually haven't seen the list, so I probably may not contribute as much to this to aspect. Um, but I know that we plan on interviewing the top four uh, at the later half of this segment. Um, we'll just combine it all into a, a, a long podcast. But uh, what what are your thoughts? I mean, Jimmy, we haven't really got your 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 viewpoint. I mean, you saw the games, you saw the decks. What did you think? So sadly, I didn't uh, get to see too many of the games because I was, uh, you know, there was there was a lot of going on, a lot of data collection going on. Um, I ha I have played Zach's deck, uh, 
haven't played Mad Angry's deck, but I saw it and it was fairly similar. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a nice mix of of flex, you know, uh, nice mix of. I think the big thing with Wormsbat is that their power cards are pretty good. Um, I think they have some some very nice upgrades, some very nice uh, um, gambits. It's the objective deck where they where that warband is clearly lacking. And so I think any um, anyone trying to build a viable tournament deck with them really has to get very granular in decision making for what to put and what not to put in that objective deck. I think, um, and hence, it's very interesting to me that both uh, Sean and Zach had very similar decks in general, but also very similar objective decks. So um, I'll leave it to them to discuss that. But I think they did a great job of of having pretty secure glory um doing just it's a hard you know hallmark of any good deck but um pretty secure glory that'll um that contributed to their overall uh play style and um and yeah to the overall overall goals of um of the warband when they're playing it so uh like i said i'll let them talk more about it but found it interesting that the decks were fairly similar and that they were very consistent they're not going to um they're not going to score a ton of glory unless they really go off with Tome Offerings into a Horde Warband, but I think their glory is fairly consistent, and it it can be very tough to kill them, which in a in a meta that's becoming more aggressive, uh, I think they're a nice counter to a lot of aggro that, that's out there. So uh, they're not giving up much glory um, uh, dying, which is nice. I think I that makes sense. But, but Jonathan, I, I know you're about to share something. I just have a quick clarifying question. Um, was it similar to... Have you played Tom's deck for Wormspat? Is it similar to that, or...? Um, kind of takes a new direction, Jimmy. I think I think Tom had a um, had a similar deck, and uh, and R.I.P. Tom. He was like <laughs> talking to him, uh, Tom Bond. He was uh, really wanting to play Wormspat, and then um, to his chagrin, as, as has happened before with him, he switched last minute. But it probably would have been a very good good tournament to have Wormspat. But I hope he uh, takes him out some other time. But yeah, his deck and his play style was similar to to uh, Sean and Zach. So I think the three of those guys certainly are on the right track with how to play this warband currently. Awesome. Well, if you're interested in learning more about how Tom plays those warbands or that warband, uh, check out Steel City. Uh, they uh, Tom did a review for the warm spot and kind of details how he plays them there. So uh, I know that we'll interview the guys later, but uh, um, if you want some concrete reading and, and lengthy explanations and other musings, check that out. Yeah, he was also on the Battle for Salvation podcast about the worm spot, and he went into it there. Um, one of the cool things I think I noticed about uh, this event is just the fact that um, a lot of these players that did well with the warbands that you know you might not have expected, um, they didn't just pick up this warband you know the week before the event, throw something obviously good together, and then play it. Um, if you know if if you've been keeping track on uh, some of the different discords and stuff, both Zach and Matt Angry have been playing Wormspat basically since they came out. And this is probably like the 12th version of their deck, <laughs> you know? Um, and then uh, as well, like Kill Dorado has been playing Farstriders uh, basically since I've known who he was. Um, so, you know, I think that that's really a testament to if you want to make a Warband work, um, and this, I know there's some chosen access players out there that have, you know, just really put the reps in. Um, I think reps are extremely important and something that, uh, a lot of the time, uh, for people like me that like to switch the warband that they play almost constantly, um, 
I think reps are so important. And I think that a lot of the results of this event kind of show that um, if you play, you know, 100 Wormsback games or whatever, then you're probably going to be way more uh, comfortable with that warband than the people that are playing the flavor of the month or the new warband. And I think you can find a lot of success that way. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, it's great like point. A, what is it called? Like you have to play thousands of games with uh, or do thousand something like 10,000 times to like become a master at it. Yeah, like 10,000 hours or something. Yeah, yeah. And that outliers. That's the book. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So. Know, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry, man. No, I was gonna say I know Zach Newcomb's almost there with uh, chosen axes, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's only played played a few of them. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, what do you guys think about the fact there were about three different builds for Hrothkorn? And I know uh, Derek and um, Duncan will talk about their builds. I think I would describe those three builds as um, Duncan's is. Um, his scoring is fairly fairly passive, and then he goes uh, and he gets he can get, but that enables him to not really rely on Hrothkorn. You can use him for um, being aggro and aggressive and taking down opposing models. You have a uh, Derek's deck, which is a, a Tomes deck, which is centered around keeping Hrothkorn alive and scoring some passive glory on the side. And then I think the third style, which is a more aggressive Hrothkorn, which is um, just taking a little more of the aggro objectives and trying to get the opposing uh, warband and, and getting a lot of kills. I mean, what do you... Um, so one thing that was interesting, all all seven Hrothkorn decks took both distractions and Timbal offerings. So there are obviously a lot of similarities here. Um, but uh, I think uh, there were some differences which, which were important. So what do you guys think? Um, I guess I can go first. Um, I, I think it's really interesting that I, I guess I'm not surprised um, that it ends up being powerful, but I think the core of a good Rothcorn deck is uh, has to do with um, a lot of combos and then a lot of card draw cards. Um, they have a number of cards that will reward them for playing power cards, drawing power cards, um, running out of power cards in their deck. Um, if you look at both of these decks, I think that that's probably the biggest thing that has that uh, i find that it has in common well those um, are universals though those are not uh those are not faction specific cards um that's true um although i think that a big part of the um, reason that it works so well for them um is in some respects they have the um what is arm it called? Of the they, they have arm of the everwinter or no they have the one that uh Allows them to draw multiple cards as oh. an action, and I know not everyone. I know they don't didn't all take that, um, but that that helps. Um, they also have the objective for playing. I think uh, two or big. three gambits at once. Um, yeah, a natural cutting. Yeah. yeah. So um, see, so, so, yeah, I think that's a core part of any good Rothcorn. I think, uh, um, in my opinion, I think uh, I think Duncan has pretty close to the optimal Rothcorn deck right now after playing it and seeing it in action. I think uh, one great thing about it is that he has a couple universal cards um, that synergize well with his faction cards, to your point. So he has Arm of the Everwinter and Unnatural Cunning. Arm of the Everwinter is, you know, you know flipping in a, an objective and, um, and and scoring a glorious surge. And Unnatural Cunning is probably one of the best surges in the game right now, where he's playing, you know, three gambits and he scores it. Um, so that, coupled with Digging Deep, which is drawing four cards... Uh, in a phase, and the four cards could be either objectives from a surge or just drawing power cards, plus to the end, which is a two glory uh, end phase score, meaning he went through his whole uh, power deck. That 
that makes it worthwhile for them to draw cards or have ploys to enable them to draw cards, which having cards in hand is always good, gives you more tools. But also the, his, his ability to score uh, surges in the power step without having using activations, meaning sometimes if he just draws a power card, that's useful for him. Typically, we leave our activations to go out and actively score our surges, either from a charge or from killing an enemy model, et cetera. But since he can score uh, about three, yeah, th- three of his surges, he can score just from, you know, in his um, in his power step is is very useful. So I think uh, uh, having that passive glory on the side while um, also supplementing that with uh, just other good cards like calculated risk, things like that, enable him to basically go through his objective deck without having to worry about keeping Hrothgorn or Thrafnir alive or needing them for certain cards, then he can really go ham with those two models and not worry about them dying. I think one game uh, I had my Amperbone gets play uh, into his uh, Hrothgorn deck and it was it was crazy close. And the thing that's, that stood out for me is one game I was lucky enough to kill Hrothgorn turn one and he still scored 18 glory on me. So I think that's a sign of a very good Hrothgorn <laughs> deck. Uh, it's very impressive and I suggest anyone reach out to him if they have any questions on um, on how he plays it. Yeah, great points. I think I think going into when Hearthrone came out, um, there was two builds in particular that I thought uh, might be like the move. Um, one was Tomes, and then one was uh, I mean because it just kind of makes sense. Malog had been so successful with Tomes, and then uh, we talk about you know this aggro flexi deck with a little bit of objective destruction. And I think both players, um, even though they each took you know more like Duncan had the more aggressive approach while Derek had the more passive approach. They both, their decks are actually very similar aside from those cards that really make those archetypes work. Where for Derek, it's tomes, and for Duncan, it's maybe more uh, re-rolls and accuracy cards. Um, both players, as you mentioned, dipped into that objective destruction and draw power capabilities that innately uh, synergize so well with Hrothgorn's faction cards. So, you know, both players have Armor of the Endwinter and uh, Scorched Earth. Both players have four ways to either destroy or flip objectives. Both players are uh, drawing a lot. They have draw maybe draw engines or draw mechanics in their in their decks. Uh, for Derek, it's multi-purpose scoring objectives and drawing into those tomes. And um, both players are also um, scoring cards based on how many cards they're drawing, whether it's digging deep or to the end. In Duncan's case, so I think it, it's what we can see here is that. The core engine for Hrothgorn is is quite uh, similar for all the decks, right? You're gonna t- you're gonna slightly tap into all of those innate synergies that come with your deck, uh, and then you have these wound upgrades. I mean, having a faction set in growth and a faction potion of constitution that is permanent is insane. Um, but I, I really like the fact that we were able to see two types of Hrothgorn players. Uh, with different, with slightly different strategies, or actually very different strategies, but very similar decks. Uh, very fascinating. Um, it was nice to see them play and uh, against other matchups and do so well. But I really liked seeing their mirror match. Um, and you know, I think, um, you know, when you're the guy who has to try to stay alive and, and stack tomes, it sometimes gets hard when literally a mirror version of you is, is breathing down your neck. And Jimmy, to your point. Duncan's deck does do really well in that it scores glory. It has the ability to score a lot of glory very quickly. Like in the final, we saw Duncan score 11 glory in one round, which is it was pretty it's pretty massive. That's Curse Breaker and Grimwatch levels of, of silly. But then we also 
have this this option where, like as you mentioned, if Hrothgorn goes down, the rest of the warband can kind of pick up the slack. Whereas in Derek's version, if Hrothgorn goes down, um, he all but loses the game. And in fact, he usually loses. So I think that ability to flex, um, as we talk about so often in the past, is so relevant and so important. But um, it was very nice to see two successful strategies. And I really think that final could have gone um, either way uh, if it had gone to game three. So um, congratulations to both. But I just find it very interesting that Hrothgorn, from a core from a core perspective, has like the same de- uh, cards in every deck. Yeah. More so I, than other warbands. I think that if you look at the... I think that they, they have some card differences, but I think that the way that they play is very similar. They have what I would call like a glory floor, where if you don't really do anything and you just let them do what they want to do, they're going to be able to score in uh, Dean's or uh, sorry, in Duncan's case, probably um, you know something like 12 or so glory, and that's a pretty good glory floor for not doing it, uh, you know, not needing the other op- person. And then in uh, Duncan's case, he has or Derek's um, case. Or no, no, and I'm still on Duncan. Sorry. In Duncan's case, he has um, Tome of Offerings and Trophy Belt, so he only needs a few kills to make that, uh, you know, six to or so glory, um, which I think he did frequently. I think in one of his games against Grimwatch, the score ended at like thirty something. Um, but you really only need a couple of those kills, um, you know, to really get going. And then in Derek's case, um, he has probably a similar uh, glory floor without the tomes, and then as long as his uh, Rothcorn is alive, then he's going to get you know another six or so glory at the end, um, and that can be and because they're also destroying objectives, and objective play is probably the main other way to uh, reliably get above those uh, scores. Um, I think that it's very difficult for anyone to beat. Um, those glory ceilings. So I think it's a combination of they have a very reliable floor um, and then they have the potential to get much higher and stop you from getting near them. Um, I, I, I think they both end up doing that in different ways, but it's very cool to see um, how that works like mechanically. Yeah, yeah. And again, shout out to Derek as well. I mean, his deck obviously yeah. was very excellent and um and made to the final right even though i thought uh you know duncan's oh, maybe yeah. quite a little more uh, uh a little better i think uh derek clearly had a great deck and that that tomes ogre is is very very scary yeah tough and hide and massive bulk on a six one model is stuff <laughs> with two uh with survival instincts it's, it's pretty nutty so um yeah, you know. yeah so um Last thing, curious to get you guys' thoughts. Again, we mentioned it before, but um, you know the Grimwatch were competitive, but actually overall in this event had a uh, losing record. It's probably not really much much to talk about because there are only two players, although they're very they're very good players. Um, but yeah, I guess curious. Uh, we talked about it a little bit before, but um, what do you guys think about this current meta? Is it more aggro? Uh, is it the fact that it's more aggro, or that there's more objective destruction? A combination of both. Uh, Warband fatigue. Um, Maybe all the above. What do you guys think? So I've made it no secret that I dislike the Grimwatch strongly. Um, <laughs> but what I what I do think is that, you know, we had a feeling that Hrothgorn may be able to disrupt their play style. Um, so I think it's a combination of two things. Um, actually, maybe three things. And I alluded to some of this earlier, but for argument's sake, I'll repeat it here. Number one, um, kind of like how the data shows that the more games you play, 
and the more familiar you are with your opponent's strategies, the uh, closer the glory differential is and um, how important ex- factors outside of player skill affect the game. So number one, I think people are very familiar with Grimwatch. Their enemy, their public enemy number one, they do things really well um, and they're very popular. So it gets frustrating to see them and play against them as them. Uh, number two, uh, Warband Fatigue kind of alludes to my first point is that people don't want to play them anymore. Um, and, and then perhaps, you know, as you mentioned, there's not a flight or something on the line here. Um, maybe it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go try hard this event because there's no financial investment or opportunity cost. Um, and then number three, I think the objective destruction that Hrothgorn provides uh, is, is very reliable. Um, we have access to universal cards where players can tap into this strategy, but Hrothgorn rewards you additionally for tapping into these strategies. Um, not only do you get to mess up your opponent, but you get to score glory, which makes a lot of sense. So do I think it's the end of Grimwatch? Oh, I'm sorry, my dog is barking. She doesn't like Grimwatch either. Um, <laughs> do I think it's the end of Grimwatch? No. No, I don't. Um, in fact, I think if... You know, the next time there is an event, um, hopefully Nova, we, we don't know yet, um, we'll, we'll probably see a lot of them out there in addition to Hrothgorn. Do I think that players have to think a little bit more when they're playing Grimwatch? Yeah, it's no longer an easy button, move on to objective, score 30 glory. Um, and I think that in itself is a win. And I'd like to see more uh, strategies that reward you know, playing well, but don't necessarily hurt the objective style play, which I think is an important integral part of the game. It's just sad that, you know, one warband has abused it so much and, and another warband um, has been good at it for so long, which is Thorns. If that, I don't know if that answers your question, but those are my thoughts. Yeah, um, I mean, I, th- I think from my perspective, um, a lot of the inherent strengths of Grimwatch are still going to be there. If I think if, if you... If, I think if Grimwatch players um, look at Duncan and Derek's decks and sort of know that they have to plan for that sort of a strategy, um, I think that there are solutions. I think kind of, as we mentioned earlier, I think uncontested and coveted spoils um, kind of go a long way to help. Um, I think you could also flex into aggro. Um, because Hrothorn is also very new, um, I also think that reps um, Grimwatch against Hrothorn um may also help um we don't know like you know a lot of the time in an event you have to make quick decisions um so is the right strategy to try to kill rothcorn right away um it might be um is it you know just to try to score all of your objectives as quickly as you can before he removes them um you know so they're they're i think that good players will always adapt um and i think that a lot of the inherent strengths of the grimwatch are still going to be there and maybe they just take some different cards maybe they take cards that will allow them to flip the objectives back. I think that uh, most competitive Grimwatch's decks could uh, spare a card like Lethal Snares. Um, you throw that on a ghoul, and then you jump on a flipped objective, and uh, you know, then you're good. So I, I, um, I think that this... I would say that most objective decks from LVO or the UK Grand Clash would be extremely unprepared for a deck like Duncan's and probably lose most of the time. Um, but I think that uh, there's definitely ways to adapt. But it's, you know, I think that's one of the cool things about the game, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, agreed. I think it um, for me, I think the primary takeaway is that Grimwatch had been out for, you know, several months now. And I think and there's been a release since then and or two releases since then. And I think the, the meta has adapted a bit to the previous way that they had been played or previous or current way that they've been played. And perhaps you know, Grimwatch players um, could look at um, different archetypes or slightly different builds to adjust in the in this new setting to JD's point. Um, but yeah, I think they're they're still good, still probably a tier, and uh, still could do well in an event. But um, yeah, it's nice to see the meta adjust and to uh, perhaps I, I think right now they're no longer S tier for sure. So um, I think it's um, it's, yeah. it's a nice setup right now. I think the meta's done well. I, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that most of these successful decks um, know that Grimwatch are really good, and they're committing a lot of resources, or they're taking a lot of cards that have the versatility. Um, of countering them, like objective removal, like a lot of pushes with distraction, um, mischievous spirits, I think was in some of the worm spat decks, um, things like that. Um, like m- any successful deck right now has to know that it'll face a Thorns deck, it'll face a Grimwatch deck, and it has to have a plan for that. And I think if you look at most of the decks that did well, you can see that they obviously have a plan for it. And some of them may be leaning into that matchup um, even more. Uh, than you know like or very very much so yeah um, i mean grim, grim watcher like Malog, right like you never went to an event without a plan to take yeah. down Malog. i think um, that's a good analogy yeah yeah so in, in this case you just have to plan for it um so i think if you <laughs> if you plan for it it's great if your warband already helps you be good at it and rewards you for planning even more into it then that's even better which is why i think rothgorn does so well in this meta I don't know if they're the Grimwatch killer, like I mentioned, but um, I think Jimmy's right. The power power balance is, is a little... The gap between the Grimwatch and maybe even the Thorns with the rest of the Warbands is smaller. So, um, you know, as, as, as the meta always does, it adapts. And I think, you know, despite the fact that there hasn't been a far list in so long, <laughs> we have been able to um, uh, kind of see some shifts in the meta. What I'd really like to see is, like, if we're not able to have a physical event, maybe there's some other online event with, like, actual, um, with, with, like, maybe something, some prize on the line, you know, other than just uh, internet clout, which I think is still important. And, and, and for the data that we gathered here, we must have these events moving forward uh, in one way or another. But, you know, I would like to see maybe, like, a trophy on the line or, or some sort of, some event where, like, there's a little bit more fanfare. Um, and granted, this is only the first one, so we can only go up from here. It's a fantastic event. Jimmy, you did a great job, and, and in no way am I uh, devaluing the event. I would just like <laughs> to see an event with more on the line than what already has been, and I want to see people bring their number one A game. Um, and then I'd like to see where the Grimwatch, the Thorns, the, the Hrothgorns, the Wormspats, the Cursebreakers stack up. That is something that I hope that we can all work towards as a community, um, and it's you know hopefully spearheaded by someone maybe even on this podcast. But I really <laughs> really want to see some insane like no 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 bars held like I'm here to win this event and I'm going to try hard it uh, <laughs> and and look at those results if that makes sense. Yeah, maybe that's something we can work on. Yeah, yeah I think that'd be great. And and yeah, I think um I think obviously this we would all prefer uh, in person grand clashes, but um, you know in the midst of what's going on with the coronavirus and um, all the limitations that it's placed upon um, 
you know, first of all, life in general, which is mm-hmm. tough, but also, you know, something that we really enjoy, which is playing these games. You know, I think we're all doing our best, right? So, um, yes. Uh, thanks to everyone who participated in this event. Thanks to you guys for for having me on. And yeah, hope um hope we can do another one of these some, at some point in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then to that point, Jimmy, again, thank you so much for running this event and working yeah. with the online resources available. I mean, the fact that you know not only did we all commit a Sunday to it, 30 players from seven different countries, eight different time zones. Um, not only did you get did we get to play and and have fun and come together as a community. Um, and you had to run through 139 games to collect data, actually 141 with the final. Um, that That is impressive, and I, I can't thank you enough, and I'm sure the community is very grateful. But the fact that we're also able to discuss those those results and be able to uh, predict what the future is going to look like is also something that cannot be understated. So again, Jimmy, thank you so much for providing the platform for all of us to have fun and, and talk about the game we all love so dearly. Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, no problem. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we go? Uh, Yeah, I think that's it. But um, if anyone has any uh, questions, they can get in touch with me um, on uh, Discord. And, uh, and yeah, hope to have another one of these in in the summer. Absolutely. We will figure it out one way or another. Um, I think this – go ahead. Oh, sorry. I think you're on our Discord, uh, right, Jimmy, and all the other ones? Yes, I should be. Yeah. Cool. Okay, great. Well, people should uh, know where to find you if they don't already. <laughs> exactly. Um, so with that, Jimmy, thank you so much for coming uh, again. Uh, as always, friend of the show, love having you on. Um, we're going to go ahead and segue to our top four interviews. So uh, you might hear a little bit of a shift in tone, but don't worry. We're going to try to make it as smooth as possible. All right. Jonathan here, joined by Sean Matson, one of the two Worm Spat players who made it to the fourth round of the event undefeated. How are you doing today, Sean? Pretty good. Honored to be here. Thank you very much for the invite. <laughs> Our pleasure. Um, you brought Worm Spat to the event and did very well with them. Uh, can you tell us why you chose that warband and maybe what the general strategy behind the deck was? Uh, appreciate it. Uh, yeah. The reason why I use them is because I, I believe they're good control warbands in a like a defensive way because they don't give up too much uh, glory themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can use a lot of pushes and like mischievous spirits and stuff like that to like just move move stuff around the board to just annoy my opponents and keep their glory totals low so that I can just like take advantage of it and jump them by my like semi somewhat good counter punch. So it's just like an aggressive way of taking away objective bands, their their objectives. Yeah, I think that makes sense. What war bands did you end up playing in the event? Um, I believe I started off against the Harrows from Thomas. He's a pretty good player. He has uh, plays the GC around here pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. They're a pretty decent matchup for me, ultimately, because they don't really punch too hard unless I let them inspire. Um, if I give them, they need well his the way he plays his they're pretty uh, like standoffish, and I knew I played them before so I knew I could stand off myself and just wait until he gets there, wait for me to build up and then just go counter punch which is the essential uh, because the heralds do have their own pushes and they just like they push you off of everything. Mm-hmm. Problem is if you do use the four distractions. 
you don't you're not you don't have your own pushes yourself like you don't have sidesteps and all that kind of jazz so in that matter i use my distractions to mess up their game plan as well so as long as they don't score i'm pretty good with it yeah that seems to be sort of the overall strategy of the deck is mitigate the other person scoring yeah pretty much and the deck comes from the heralds i play the heralds a lot previous Mm -hmm. to this and i kind of like took their idea of just destroying and denial and try to make it them because they are a little bit more easier to punch at and don't die so yeah were there any other matchups that stood out to you um i feel really bad for the rip up player danielle because rippers are like probably the best matchup i can have because they can run in they can throw a lot of dice at me but ultimately chances of them killing me are pretty low i mean they have to go through a lot of bulk to uh, and even with the wolf attack additionally the way i play and the way for example mpe plays we have steadfast defender and seeping rot in our deck mm-hmm. so we're always standing objectives that's that's our main goal we deny the objectives to the opponent to the point that they have to hit me and then with uh let's say buried instinct i get a i get a uh, a cheeky guard in there and then i score glories because he can't get me off that objective and yeah. that's the same issue with Ripus. they just don't have enough punch to get me off there yeah yeah because and the wolf attacks aren't really that accurate and you can mitigate either either attack so they could go from doing four to two damage <laughs> exactly and they have yeah. to wait they have to wait i mean they're Action economy is probably even more important than the uh, Wormspat yeah. economy and that boy. Like, so it's it's a really bad matchup for us. So <laughs> I, I was I was glad to see him there. Yeah. Was there anything that you were specifically worried about facing, or something that took you by surprise? Well, I didn't want to meet Max at all. <laughs> and of course, he was I playing got, the uh, uh, Thundrix. Yeah. yeah. And of course, I got to play him in the third round um yeah that's a very bad matchup they escalate so fast uh they have easy accessible and long range cleave which will tear through the uh, the worms back quite good mm-hmm. um the problem is denying them glory is the only way to deny the dwarfs glory is by standing very far away from them and kind of like uh trying to starve them out the problem mm-hmm. is if you get to control the board or if they get to control the board there's no way you can run away from them anyway so it was really really tough ultimately in the end i just stole it away because i only had fecula left in one of the rounds <laughs> and i kind of snuck onto an objective and he attacked but didn't kill me and didn't push me off the objective so i ended up scoring seeping rot uh Steadfast Defender, which then turned into Combination Strike, and then he only, and he wasn't able to get his uh, warning shot off. So in the end, oh, it, was wow. like four, it was a four glory swing, which uh, secured me the game, even though I was dead in the water at that point. So it's just, that one was pure luck. <laughs> and I feel bad for Max, but then not very that much. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it's a dice and uh, card game, so yeah, absolutely. Definitely going to be some luck involved. So, um, was there anything that you think you learned from making the deck, or anything that you might change um, if you were going to play it again? Um, the deck I'm playing right now, I'm probably going to add more movement to it because that's mm-hmm. what killed me in the game against uh, Duncan. 
mm-hmm. with the with his ogre is that I couldn't get a, the first round I was able to shifting reflection into his boys and yes. Gogoch just with Tome of Offerings had three attacks killed three guys six glories there you go first game went to me uh, the problem was after that he learned from it and I'm sorry <laughs> for Derek because I'm pretty sure I'm the reason why he keeps on destroying all the objectives like right away now um, <laughs> That's there was funny. no yeah there's no way for me to get around it anymore so I caught my surprise in the first round, took advantage, but then afterwards, uh, that ogre, when he gets Glory Seeker on and just gets a good roll, then I'm one shot it. And lo- losing one to two in the round for the warm spat is really detrimental. If you end up with just one of them, um, especially if the last one is Fecula, you're pretty much screwed. So yeah, if yeah, I've that learned makes it, sense. yeah. So. The deck revolves around keeping them alive, uh, but now I would even go as far as maybe take uh, Frenzied Search out to put in uh, like Unnatural Vitality to give like another way to get in the round. For example, a Troll of an Ogre to get to the juicy stuff behind. Yeah, uh, it would also help in securing some objectives here and there, trying to take it away. But right now I'm just waiting for the new fact and some new cards because where the deck is at right now it's pretty much it's decent it has a good it has a good consistency to it but it always see it has its limitations if i don't roll good like in two or three attacks that's it because yeah. i do i do need that i need the counter punching they do very very well especially when they're inspired but if i can't hit then uh, obviously not it's not going to happen yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, congratulations on doing so well at the event, and uh, thanks for doing this recording for the podcast. I appreciate it. Anytime. Okay, up next, I am joined by Zach Newcomb, one of the two Wormspat players that made it into the fourth round of the event undefeated. How are you doing today, Zach? A little bit tired from my newborn, but otherwise very good. Good, good. Um, you brought Wormspat to the event. Can you tell us why you chose the Warband and what the strategy behind the deck was? So I chose Warm Spat because uh, when they first initially came out, everybody was like, wow, Warm Spat is terrible. And I was looking at the fighter cards and I just wasn't seeing that they were terrible. Their objective cards surely are, but uh, that was the reason why I thought it was going to be an unpopular warband and I wanted a challenge. Cool. What warbands did you end up uh, playing at the event? I faced the uh, Gerzag's Iron Skulls first, uh, some more flight in the round two, Far Striders in round three, and Hrothgorn in the last round. Interesting. And I guess I think uh, I kind of skipped over it. What was the strategy behind your deck? How were you playing the Warband? So because Wormspat is so tanky, I wanted to go with a full bore aggro in your face uh, with a little bit of flex mixed in and be able to uh, weather the storm when somebody hides in the back as that happened in the fourth round. Cool. Cool. Um, were there any matchups that you were specifically worried about facing before the event or any that took you by surprise during the event? 
I was very concerned about Born Flight. I had done a couple practice games with Born Flight, and here in the Atlanta area, we have a experienced Born Flight player that I've uh, had the experience of playing. And I was very concerned about uh, passive scoring decks in particular, uh, because my deck is built on interaction and being able to take models off the board. And I can't, if I can't get to you, then that's a problem. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you did you end up facing them? I, I did uh, with uh, uh, Gerard, the professor. Uh, took more flight and I ended up facing him in round two and ended up with a true draw uh, in the first uh, in the first game and then we did not have time for a third game I barely eked out a win in the uh, in the second game that we played so we ended up uh, scoring the match on a uh, on glory differential instead of uh, who, who won because we each uh, had a chance to win. So Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Um, were there any other uh, matchups you wanted to talk about? Well, uh, Hrothgorn the Ogre was of particular concern because he hits very hard uh, once mm -hmm. he gets the proper upgrades on him, and I ended up facing a Tomes Ogre deck. Uh, where he basically hid in the back and read books the entire time, which was a challenge because Wormspat is not very fast and Hidden Paths doesn't exist anymore. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that was uh, that, that was a particular challenge because I spent the uh, almost the entire first two rounds running towards him, and really the only fighting happened in the third round once he had eight wounds and minus one damage on him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're just not going to kill that guy. So yeah. Uh, yeah. That <laughs> didn't happen uh, in that match, but uh, yeah, the, those, those were the ones that I was concerned about and they did happen. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, when you were making the deck or practicing it before the event, um, was there anything particular or interesting you think you may have learned, or was there anything um, that you would change after the event if you were to play the deck again? So I, I think I have the deck pretty much nailed down. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I like all of the cards that I have in here. Uh, I'm hoping that there's uh, some new, better um, aggro objectives that come out, but uh, at as it sits right now, everything's good. Uh, the uh, lessons learned um, and interesting stuff, a lot of people focus on Fecula with the Wormspat, with magic and doing mm -hmm. stuff with her. The only two cards that I need Fecula for is Bold Conquest and Sphere of Akshi. Once those two cards have come out, I don't need Fecula anymore. I focus on the other two guys because the other two guys hit harder and uh, their upgrades work better with them and Fecula just dies really easy. So uh, that, yeah. that's a interesting tidbit. Your leader is not very important in this warband, <laughs> in my opinion. So Yeah, I, th I think that makes sense. Uh, well, congratulations on doing so well at the event, and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, and thanks for putting out some excellent content. Thanks. Alrighty, this is Amon tagging in for Jonathan. I am joined by Derek Captain Murger Trackware. I, I don't know if I pronounced your last name right. Maybe you can correct me. 
That, that was actually one of the best attempts I've ever heard, Mr. Amon Crusoe. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, attempting my name as well. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, Derek was one of the finalists uh, from the recent online event that happened. And going into the uh, after actually all four rounds, he was undefeated uh, and he was playing Crothorn's man trappers. Derek, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good, brother. How are you? I'm doing good, good. Everything all right? I heard you got out of lawn, lawn duty for this. That That's right. Uh, I've been working outside all day and then, you know, terribly, I have to abandon all, all my coworkers, which consists of uh, my girlfriend, and uh, to, to work outside and, and toil while I come chat with you. Well, sounds like a win. <laughs> Absolutely. Good, good. Okay. So um, you brought Hrothgorn's man trappers to the event can you tell us why you chose that warband and what the strategy behind your deck was so the the big reason that i actually chose it uh was when the man trappers came out was the same time as the ogroid myrmidon uh for Warcry came out and i really like that model and i've always been uh, a big fan of corn so i thought it was going to be a great conversion opportunity and i want to be able to actually see that conversion on the table once in a while so I put together uh, a Man Trappers build uh, with that converted uh, Myrmidon as Rothorn. I use a Flesh Hound instead of the Kitty. And then I took uh, some Bloodletter Skulls from that GW Skull Pack and converted the Noblars into that. Well, that's fine and good for being on the table, but now Corona's hit, so I'm not able to play that ever. Yeah. Uh, but I still had uh, the great idea for the build itself and decided to throw that into Vassal and see how it worked. Awesome. And uh, I have seen pictures, and I will say that they are very cool. And so I think uh, if you haven't already uploaded them to Well of Power, uh, you should definitely do so. I think there's a members gallery there. Sure. Uh, but um, that's awesome. So what was the strategy behind your deck? So even though it's a com- it's supposed to be a converted Bloodthirster, it's actually a Tomes build. Boo. And, oh, I know. You know, I, I who was it? I, I think I was listening to Chatting Crits, and I heard, I heard the guys talking about control and how they wanted to try it. And, you know, anything that Michael Carlin can dream, I can build. So there you go. Decided, yeah, so decided that, that I want to give that a shot. And uh, the, the the two big reasons why was because I felt that Rothorn would be survivable enough that he would be able to make it to the end to get that six glory from the tomes. But also, uh, I, I read an article a while ago that, that some guy who was so salty about Grimwatch wrote and decided that I wanted something that could just go in and tear up ghouls uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's really where that came from. Well, I'm really glad that that dude inspired you to create <laughs> a, a very strong deck. So he, uh, He's an inspiring guy all around. Yeah, I, I guess maybe he gets half the credit, huh? There you go. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed that read, and I'm glad you, uh, you, you made a really cool list. And congrats again on your amazing performance. So... Uh, what warbands did you end up playing against at the event? Uh, so the the first first match was against goblins, and my second match was against goblins as well. Uh, in in both cases, I think that Rothorn uh, the the goblins are definitely a tough match going into that. Uh, for for the goblins, I, I think it's probably a, an easy one for the uh, the ogres. 
which is funny because both my opponents in those first two rounds were awesome, and uh, I ended up dropping a game against uh, both of them for that. Uh, my my third round was against uh, Nico from Italy, uh, which was cool to have sort of that uh, that extra international presence. Uh, but he was playing Grimwatch, which I had really put in a lot of thought to my game plan there. Uh, and it was nice to see that uh, after a, a little bit of fine-tuning, uh, Rothorn was able to, to get past that. Because I think, I think right now in the, in the current Warhammer Underworlds meta that Grimwatch really is the litmus test. Can you get past them? Can you get past Ghost? Uh, if if you can't, then you really need to decide uh, how how well you want to do in a tournament, especially against uh, the the talent that was in that uh, that vassal tournament there. Uh, my my fourth game was against Zach, who was playing his Wormspat. Uh, that that was amazing. I'll, I'll let him talk about uh, his team. I, I understand you guys are interviewing him as well, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that build actually really uh, surprised me with his, his aggro worm spat, which, uh, you know, I, I think I lost the first game against him and, and was able to claw my way back. Uh, and then, yeah, in the end, it was the, the Ogre Mirror match against Duncan with, uh, you know, two very different styles of Rothorn. Yeah, yeah, and it, uh, it, was, it was a joy to watch the match, but I think um, it just goes to show that uh, if you put a lot of effort, thought, and preparation to your warband, regardless if it's worm spat or man trappers, um, you know, you'll do well. And so I think, you you know, congratulations to, like, you know, all four of the guys who are going into that fourth round undefeated. But uh, it is very cool to see a varied um, lineup as well. You played uh, four different warbands, which isn't too bad. Uh, and two of them were warbands we hadn't seen previously in a while. So pretty neat. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, especially that final match against Duncan, it's, it's funny, yeah. Uh, You'd learn more from when you lose instead of when you win, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, definitely learn. Oh, there you go. So definitely uh, going in that last round. Uh, Duncan is an amazing player and and a gentleman to hang out with. Uh, I I met him at LVO uh, about uh, I guess two three months ago now. Uh, so it was great to play again in the finals against. Uh, you know, another ogre, one with a different build, one with the caliber of player that Duncan is. He he deserves uh, every every bit of that internet glory that uh, he's gotten there. Oh yeah, Duncan Duncan's fun. We had a good time at LVO. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes, we did. It felt uh, it felt uh, so recent. It, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but it does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I, I certainly miss it. And boy, with everything that's going on uh, with the pandemic, uh, you know, guys, stay home. I want to have grand clashes again and as soon as possible. So, sure, sure. Well, I appreciate that uh, PSA. Um, so, were there any matchups we're specifically worried about facing, or, or did any of them took you by surprise? I know you alluded to Nurgle, but um... yeah, you know what, the Nurgle was definitely a surprise. Uh, Let's see. Actually, the uh, the second match against goblins uh, that that I think it was yourself uh, seeing the amberbone weapons. So aggro goblins was uh, quite a bit of a surprise. I I definitely not expected what Snurk can do before he gets inspired, and I think Snurk uh, kept getting kills on Bushwhacker Quiv uh, throughout the tournament, which was funny. Uh, but yeah, the the big thing. Uh, 
Nico's Grimwatch was something that that I had really put a lot of thought into how I was going to handle it. And so being uh, having having some exceptionally close matches uh, against against his Grimwatch uh, was was definitely a, a highlight for me. Awesome. Awesome. So with that performance, was there anything that you learned making or while playing the deck? And is there anything you might change if you had to play, you know, that particular warband and style of play again? Uh, absolutely. I, and, and you know what? I, I had a lot of fun with the Tomes Rothorn. So, and, and like I said, I've got uh, I've got that conversion that I do want to get a chance to play with. So I'm sure I'm going to run with it for for a while at least. Uh, the couple things that I would point out it it has a pretty good glory ceiling. Uh, you know, it, it only has 12 glory in the objective deck. But then it does have Tome of Glories, Tome of Offerings, if you want to kill something, and then that Acolyte for the end. Uh, but what what I needed to watch out for, and I didn't all the time, was making sure that I wasn't bleeding glory from losing the Noblars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something that definitely cost me against Duncan, and I really think it cost me in just about every, every uh, match that I played. That I was uh, I was getting too much tunnel vision on making sure that Rothorn, no matter what, would stay alive, and it led to my opponent deciding, okay, well, let's pick up one or two glory by killing a Noblar, and in a in a lot of cases, that one glory that they might get from killing a Noblar actually turns into two, three, sometimes four, depending on what upgrades and uh, what objectives they have in their hand. Right. Okay, cool. Well, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for your time today, and, and congratulations on doing so well at the event, and thanks for coming on to the podcast. Anytime. Have a great day. Thank you. And uh, we're going to take it back to Jonathan now, who will be interviewing Duncan. All right. Jonathan here, joined by Duncan Bills, the winner of the recent event. How are you doing today, Duncan? Doing all right. Got sleep this time. <laughs> cool. Um, you brought Man Trappers to the event. Can you tell us why you chose that warband and what the strategy behind your deck was? They chose the warband because uh, one giant ogre reminds me of Molog, and uh, everyone should know by now <laughs> I enjoy having a good old tough fighter to do something with. And his objectives and objective denial is also very important. That's why I chose him, because he can destroy a lot of objectives and deny people holding them, which in the Grimwatch meta of score everything by doing nothing by standing on things. If you can't stand on things, <laughs> therefore I should win, right? Huh? That, that, that was my theory on that. And if it's a gr- aggro band, I have enough passive by destroying objectives that I can sit away while letting them, you know, fight <laughs> or run at me. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I noticed that you did have a lot of um, passive glory. Like, you, you want some kills, but you don't really need them. I don't want to put myself in danger if I don't need to. If I could just sit back and make you spend two turns running get one fighter to fight me, that's mm-hmm. okay with me. I can probably still win that battle then. Uh, if I need to run at you, I can still steal glory, still steal glory from you and attack your model. It's still a giant ogre hitting you. Like there's no, he's not, he's, <laughs> he's not a pushover to say the least. Yeah. What end? Uh, what warbands did you end up playing at the event? My first was was another Man Chapter Mirror, which was very entertaining, considering it was my first Man Chapter <laughs> Mirror, actually, oddly enough. Uh, then it was Grimwatch, then Briar Queen, then the fourth and fi- fourth match was versus Wormspat, and the final is versus Frothcorns again. Yeah. Was there a specific warband you were worried about before the event, or was there anything that took you by surprise there? 
I was I worried about any of them? Not really. Like uh, Whiffers, <laughs> possibly because his aggro is fast enough with tracking and spectral wings that he can get on me. And if he lands dice, it's, he's very dice dependent. But if he lands dice, then all my minions are dead. He's scoring up glory, and I'm not sure I can catch up at that point. Uh, yeah. Briar Queen and Grimwatch, I wasn't worried about. I have enough chapter destruction, and the minions are too small. I just eat them. Hope, hopefully, hopefully, that's how it should happen. Uh, versus another Hrothgorns. Again, I've, I've never played against them. I first match was he played an aggro version. I was like, oh, I can do some of this, and you can run into my backfield, and I run into your backfield, and we just punch our goblins together. <laughs> yeah. Would, would you say that the weakness, or I don't even know if it would be a weakness, but would you say that the way to beat your deck is basically you just have to kill it? Like, you have to kill everything? You have to deny me the ability to kill a few of your things while, in turn, killing my things, which is generally hard to do because yeah. like i've calculated risk you can't you're not going to stop it you can just shack it back into <laughs> it sure whatever destroy objectives i have in that deck four four cards that will get me uh Hrothgorn specific and two of those will get me scorched earth so if i have right. a model if i have Hrothgorn, i can get both either one because he has the uh arm of the everwinter his ability or frozen earth i should say so it's staying next to it and if i don't then any model even the dog staying objective i can destroy it so like you have to destroy all my minions deny me that so both that's two more that way i can get for passively which i score and then me just killing you a bottle which <laughs> isn't as hard like there's a dog like most things versus four wound warbands like warm spat and like stormcast it's significantly harder but, yeah, but when you do you probably get two or three glory from it from trophy belt or tome of offerings correct because yeah. I have enough passive to get the thing. Like, oh, I do four damage now. I push towards you so you can't run away. I re-roll dice. Like, I have a thing to keep myself buff if I need to. Or I can go aggro and keep myself alive that way by killing you. So yeah. to beat it, yeah, you need to kill Hrothgorn. And while doing so, not not have be in a position that Hrothgorn already scored all his glory he needed to. Like, in the finals, like, Hrothgorn died. But he did the one thing he needed to do. He killed a model. And he scored me three glory <laughs> Yeah, because a lot of the rest of your deck is based around just drawing cards, and as long as you run out of cards by the end of the game, you've probably scored three or four glory off of that. Yep, which thing on objective, draw three. Then I draw two, right. you draw one. But generally, people are like, oh, that card's bad. They're giving their opponent a card. I'm like, whatever they do with that card is probably <laughs> less worth it than me actually get scoring three glory off of it, because in the in, to the end and uh, digging deep. Which digging deep can score off just by scoring uh, surges also or drawing, so it's really nice that way. Like, it's a free glory almost. Very rarely yeah. it's not. Cool. Was there anything interesting or memorable you think you learned making and testing the deck or playing in the event? Uh, apparently, my opponent can have worse dice than me. <laughs> versus Yuri, he probably heard me complain up a storm because, like, round one, he beat me by two glory. Round two, I drew five objectives. It was like, all right, there goes my trophy belt and my uh, Tome of Offerings. No problem. All right. Draw into four upgrades and a power card. It was not Blair Scramble for that matter. I was like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I drew my first. I'm like, oh, draw a card. No problem. I drew my last upgrade and went, uh, okay. That, that's fine. That's fine. I also had drew to the end in my hand and digging deep. So I literally drew four cards in round one and did absolutely nothing except sit there and go, <laughs> all right. So I scored a glory while your Briar Queen is punching my things in the face. Cool. But then he just whipped dice and Varklab never bothered killing a dog, which then Thrafnir just charged chain rasps <laughs> around. I was like, haha, I win because I have no idea how I won this game. Like, Yuri, <laughs> Yuri tell you, I was cursing up the start. I was like, I don't know what the is going on right now at, at all. 
That was the most amount. I was like, apparently I can have no upgrade. I, I kept Glory Seeker because I can kill Varkai with a broken one hit. That's the only upgrade I kept was that. But mm-hmm. my surge objectives just fell out. Like I got I got both of the instructions off of one card, which then got calculated risk, which then I got into uh, kill a chain uh, <laughs> wrath. I was like, yeah, I'm so good. <laughs> I should not be winning this at all. But uh. yeah, it is a it is a dice and card game. So sometimes sometimes that happens. So. Cool. Well, um, I think that is all my questions for you. Congratulations on the win. Um, Well-deserved. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Very much for having me. Cool. Thanks a lot. All right. So that concludes our player interview slash questions. Very interesting stuff. Um, I'm really grateful that they took the time to, uh, you know, uh, answer some of those questions. And sounds like there was some really good information shared there. Jonathan, do you have any additional comments in regards to uh, those interviews? Um, not really. I thought it was uh, cool to be able to get the perspective of the four players that were in the running in that fourth round. And uh, if the listeners like those sort of interviews, let us know. Um, maybe we'll do more in the future. Absolutely. It uh, It is interesting to me that the latest two warbands uh, did so well, uh, at least going into the fourth round, uh, when one of them maybe people expected, but the other two not so much. And so I guess that segues well into our listener questions. Uh, Jonathan, why don't you uh, answer this first one here? This is from Jungle Cat. Okay, cool. I'm interested in your thoughts on how Hrothgorn affects the meta. Um, also nice to see some Wormspat do well. We'll be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah. Um, basically, I think that Duncan's uh, winning deck for this event is... Um, probably, uh, I would say, if not the best way to run that deck, um, extremely close. I, I feel like most of the time with most decks that there are uh, one or two cards you could always change out. Um, I think this deck is extremely hard for almost anything in the meta to beat. And if there is a hard counter to it, I bet it has a hard time beating everything else that it will see. So I think that this, I think that we're, I think that the Hearthcorn in general. And then this particular style of deck that kind of has this, I would say, like magic combination of a great glory floor, an amazing glory ceiling if you get Tome of Offerings and Trophy Belt out. Mm-hmm. And then um, it just you just can't kill Hrothgorn um, very easily because of his amazing defensive upgrades. So I think right. it's kind of like the the holy trinity of what you want in a deck. <laughs> so, mm. um, and then it also just, it's a hard counter to objective war bands. So right. because that's of all true. Yeah, that's, that's so. very, very true. I would agree with almost everything you said there. I think um, it's, it's, it's amazing at how well the faction cards synergize with universal cards, especially uh, scorched earth from night vault as well. So I think it's yeah. just a case of perfect timing. But speaking of trinities, you know, you're talking about the <laughs> holy trinity. Let's talk about the unholy trinity that is the worm spat. What are your, uh, I guess, <laughs> summarizing thoughts there? Um, talking to both of those players and looking at the decks and things like that, I think that they were definitely prepared um, for a lot of what the meta had to offer. And I think they put in a lot of preparation. Um, I think that those... I think that when you play a deck like that and you put the effort into practicing, I would say I think both of those decks are probably like, you know, high B tier. 
Um, I think they're very difficult to play. Um, and I think you rely a lot on messing up the opponent's plan. So um, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm surprised that those individual players did well. Um, I would be surprised if all Wormsbat players have similar results, if that makes sense. If we had a very large event, I would expect a couple players to do very well, but I wouldn't expect most of them to have that level of success. Right, right. I think I think you're absolutely correct. Um, uh, we alluded to this earlier in the episode, but I think uh, it's it was kind of like the perfect storm for Nurgle in a way. Um, first event, really, um, a lot of uh, assumptions online and through perhaps even personal play that they're not very good. So you have this warband that people are dismissing that think is a free win and uh, mm-hmm. haven't really been... Uh, taken to a uh, an event and done well and so i think with all of those factors combined and then you put some people in who have really been playing them consistently and and really trying to crack the code if you will uh, it's it's no surprise that they did so well i mean i, I actually i'll take a little bit of that back i am still surprised <laughs> that yeah. Nurgle did that well but i wonder um, if that performance is consistent as you're suggesting in the future It'll be interesting to see. Um, to me, I think that they're they just have a difficult some difficulty outscoring um, some of the other decks in the game right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we'll see, I guess, because they obviously they did a good job here. Yeah, I also really just hope that uh, a far list is dropped soon. That way, um, yeah. maybe there are ways in which Nurgle can become more consistent, and other warbands can be toned down a bit through the use of universals. So. That is always something that is ever looming over in the horizon, though we don't know just how far that horizon is, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll be, I guess, when when everything starts up again, hopefully we can get uh, some more updates. So. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's jump into our next question. This is from Compaq, and this is from the Path to Glory Discord channel, as was Jungle Cats. Um, I'm interested if you think Hrothgorn, he says he, but I'm assuming Hrothgorn here, can shift the ghouls from being the meta-defining warband if you need to tool your deck to deal with Hrothgorn. So I'm assuming this question is saying, can Hrothgorn move ghouls from being uh, public enemy number one? And mm-hmm. if so, will you need to tool your deck moving forward to deal with Hrothgorn? Uh, what do you think? I took the answer on the, this last one. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. I think, I think Grimwatch... Um, may ne- not necessarily be uh, the de facto warband to play in any event. Uh, and I would actually agree with that with Thorns. I think people like Derek and Duncan have shown uh, in the sample size that Hrothgorn is a menace, someone that should not be underestimated. Um, I definitely think he is now an A-tier warband if he wasn't so already. Um, you know, speaking of trinities again, I think, you know, you're you're probably going to see a lot of thorns grimwatch and and hrothgorn moving forward um i do think that if there is a warband that happens to be at the top or is popular which hrothgorn is both of those Mm -hmm. then you always must have an answer in your deck i think we're going to see more strength upgrades maybe some more speed upgrades to deal or escape hrothgorn uh Mm -hmm. just this is this is just another uh, wave of molog uh, style reactions. Um, yeah. You have to be prepared to take him down because 
like Molog, the best way to beat a Hrothgorn warband is to kill the big guy. And if you can get him down early, then you're most likely going to win the game. Keep in mind that Dunks, decks like Duncan's can score without Hrothgorn. But again, you know, it's Hrothgorn's man-trappers. You take down Hrothgorn, you just got to deal with a couple <laughs> Noblars and a real thick kitty. So, yeah. Uh, personally, I don't know if you can shift the ghouls from being the meta-defining warband. I didn't see uh, too many matchups. Um, I do think he's slightly favored if he plays a bit more aggressively. But ghouls can also have like a glory ceiling of like almost 30. So, I don't know. But yes, you will need tools. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that a lot of decks will have to adapt to to beat this. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I I think that I, I'm not sure I can think of a ghouls deck that I think I would say uh, I'm confident has a winning percentage against it. Um, so and if it does, I think it's going to have a lot of tech. And I do think that uh, Grimwatch are so powerful that they could take a good amount of tech to beat a large warband like uh, Rothcorn or a large fighter warband um, and still probably be good against everybody else because they're you know just that strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll be interesting to see. I, I'm thinking that they are going to have to either focus less on holding objectives um, or they're going to have to invest in uh, ways to flip the objectives back. Uh, that would be my guess at success. Yeah. Um, but honestly, the combination of Tome of Offerings and Trophy Belt I think is actually the biggest um, problem in that matchup because if you're getting three glory per kill, you really only need a couple kills um, to get above almost any warband's glory ceiling. I agree. I agree. I think I, I would agree with your assessment that there needs to be some sort of change in the Grimmauld style. Um, what I would personally at least try first is maybe flex back into that aggro style that they were so popular around the Michael Carlin win. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the with the warband, um, I know that he didn't take pit trap, um, but I was running pit trap at the time, and I think you can maybe flex back into like a field by or haymaker, pit trap, style, um, mm-hmm. tech cards that can really help you get those like early Grisselwell hits in, um, or get those Duke kills in later in the game. So, um, I think there are a lot of options for Grimwatch players if you want to follow and pursue that line of play. Um, I'm hopefully interested in seeing some more like bruising warbands, like some brawling going on in the middle of the board, less mm-hmm. objective holding. Um, again, I'm okay with any style of play in the game. I think if it's in the game and it's legal, do your best to set yourself up for success. But uh, I think it'll be neat to see maybe like a revival of Mogors or Skaven or maybe yeah. even some more Wild Hunt action, which I think have a good game into Rathgorn. So we'll see. Yeah, I think they might. Cool. Um, and then the last question is for you. Um, it says, Aman, in order for Americans to pronounce your name correctly, should we use an English accent when saying Aman? <laughs> that's a great uh, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, who asked that, by the way? Uh, that was Brandon Haas. Brandon Haas. <laughs> friend of the show. <laughs> he is a friend of the show, and so is his son, Taylor. Um, yeah. Shout out to Taylor. Uh, yeah, so... It's interesting, um, and I'll give you a little backstory. So, my name is actually pronounced Aman. So, um, the best way that I can describe it is uh, as in like uh, and mun as in money. 
So if you can combine that very quickly, it's Amun. When I came to, uh, so I grew up in Hong Kong for the first five years of my life, even though I was born in the United States. And uh, when I came to Houston, I was around five years old. And uh, they, my teacher, I think her name was Miss Ginter. She couldn't pronounce my name. And then she just said Amon. And I kind of was like, yeah, sure, okay. And uh, <laughs> I've been Amon ever since. So I don't mind Amon. Um, you know, like my significant other calls me Amon. Like it is what it is, you know. Um, but if you really want to make an effort, and I really appreciate the fact if you do, it's Amon. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll try to see if I can pronounce that. <laughs> let's let's hear it. In the future. I'm going to put you on the spot right now. Can you do it? Amon. There you go. See, look at that. Cool. I'll see if I can train my brain to <laughs> to do it. I appreciate it. You don't have to. Again, I, I literally yeah. respond to both uh, instantly. So whatever whatever is easier for you. Yeah. No, I mean, people call me John or JD, and that takes me a little bit getting used to as well. I know it's a little different, yeah. but it's, you know. Um, all right. Well, I think that is everything, unless you have any final words. Uh, stay safe, everyone. Uh, do your best to uh, make smart decisions uh, in, in terms of uh, real life uh, and in terms of the game. Uh, I know that it's kind of like a dry spell right now, but just find some way to engage with your hobby. It'll help keep you sane, whether it's starting a new army, playing a different uh, game. Like I just jumped into the strategy battle game, Lord of the Rings, Middle-earth strategy battle game. Um, mm. And so I think find ways in which you can stay um, in tune with the hobby because I think it's important. It's very easy to put it to the wayside, but remember why you enjoy it so much in the first place and find different ways to play. And Warhammer Underworlds Online is live. Uh, my review will be up this week. So go cool. ahead and uh, find ways to engage. Yeah, definitely. And if anyone you know wants to reach out and play games online or just talk about the game or anything like that, we have our Discord and uh, our you know door is always open, I guess, so to speak. Um, if anyone wants to hang out or talk or anything, so absolutely. Cool. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode. If you have any feedback, questions, or comments, let us know on Facebook at Path to Glory Podcast. You can also follow us on Podbean, where you can find the show notes for this episode. Rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we wish you the best of luck on your Path to Glory. Nice. <laughs> nice indeed.